Welcome to Sloppy Spoilers with your host, DT2. See, I'm all up on the camera like this. See that, you know, that looks like the, the big head and alien Prometheus. Me being up on the camera like this is going to make more sense than the movie, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Welcome to another episode of Sloppy Spoilers. I'm your host, DT2 Comics Chat. Tonight, we're going to review Prometheus, a.k.a. Alien, alien Prometheus. And this is going to be another interesting one because I'm sure that we all have different perspectives, okay? Because I'm already tired of this movie. But anyway, let me bring on my co-host and we'll get started. Uh, welcome to David Nemesis Howard. Hey, what's going on everybody? Uh, yeah, this is gonna be an interesting conversation. I enjoy this movie, even though I know it's flawed, but the biggest problem I have with this, this movie is the title and it just flows from there because the title Prometheus, the myth, the myth Prometheus, makes no sense in the context of this movie, and I'm sure we'll get to it. So, get used to that idea. Welcome, <laughs> to Steve Shadewing Sellers. What's up, Steve? Oh, not too much. Um, I've discovered the trick of being an alien fan, and the trick, uh, Mr. Potter, is not minding that it hurts. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a movie um, that I consider generally to be um, what I would call an interesting failure. Um, I really like what it tries to be. I like the basic idea that it aims for. But my God, does this thing fall apart on so many levels? But we'll get into that. Get into that. Welcome to Jeff, Dr. Faye Bracey. Whoa, DT's head is coming right at me. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're sitting back. You're sitting back. Better get used to this view right here. Whoa! 3D. 3D. That's, that's the only thing that could have made this uh, film. Uh, well, I don't know, what, know what if I want to say more interesting or worse than it is. Uh I'm kind of split on it, but uh, it's it's still still a film I like. Still a film I like, even with all all its flaws, but not quite in the uh, the gung ho splatter fest way that I was last week. <laughs> okay, well, again, my co-hosts are already more optimistic than I am, so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna dive right in. Um, <clears throat> eventually, we're going to uh, a point of truth. For now, we're going to get to the overall themes, but uh, something I want to do, and that is that I want to talk about exactly where this movie lost me. Now, I agree with Nemesis in that if you understand the concept and the story of Prometheus in Greek mythology, mm. I can maybe see the connection, but it's a stretch. It's, it's pushing the boundaries of what that could mean to fit it into this film frame. But this movie literally loses me from the opening scene. And here's the reason why. Hmm. For some reason, I can't understand really Scott makes some rookie mistakes and they just kind of left me scratching my head. So I'll do a compare contrast to illustrate exactly what I mean. The one thing, how many fingers I got holding up? This right here, the one thing I liked about this film was it's so beautifully shot. It is just so unbelievably beautifully shot until it's breathtaking. And really Scott almost always gets that right. That is literally it for me. And here's why. 
filmmaking one-on-one, just like storytelling one-on-one, if you're going to drop someone in the middle of the action, which is always a good place to start your story or your film, you cannot have action without context. And the opening scene of this film has precisely zero context for what's happening on the screen. So when this movie opens, we see some of the most beautiful waterfalls on earth, very picturesque, the angle, the color palette, it's, it's gorgeous. And then you see a humanoid type creature coming out with the complete albino look and the black eyes. And he got a bowl of black jello <laughs> and he puts the jello in front of him. And we're like, oh, okay. And then he takes the lid off and then there's a smaller little bowl of jello. Uh, we're like, okay, is that caviar? What is that? So we're still okay. Then he eats it and starts disintegrating. And he just disintegrates like, I'm surprised that this is happening. And then after literally his limbs start to melt off like it was instant leprosy, he goes into the water. And the only thing that we have that's maybe a clue of what we saw is we see the DNA strands begin to break down and then reform. And I'm saying to myself, <laughs> what did I just watch? Now, let me contrast that to 80s James Cameron and the first Terminator. The first Terminator has a screen. It's not a crawl. It's just a screen of dialogue that says the machines rose from the ashes of the nuclear fire, blah, 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 blah. But the final battle for humanity's fate would not be fought in the future. It would be fought in the present, dot, 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 tonight. Don't, don't, don't. Now look at that. One screen and you have the context for everything that happens after that. It didn't take but one screen. And you get what's going on. In this film, when it opens, it's beautiful, it's picturesque, but you have no idea who the engineers are. You have no idea what they're doing with the black goo. All that comes later and sometimes a couple of films later. You have no idea why he seemed to you know, commit some form of suicide. Was it ritual sacrifice? And I'm going to use uh, Bracey's term. I shouldn't have to be doing the work of the movie. And so it literally loses me from the first scene. I'm like, I just didn't understand. There's just no context for that behavior. And even with something like The Usual Suspects, the opening scene sets up the entire story, but it's one of those things where the understanding grows broader as the movie goes on. That does not happen here. What happens here is you have even more scenes without context that you have to try to fill in for yourself. So I, you know, I only watched this film for the review because I it just I'm disconnected. I'm disconnected. And so, you know, I like what my co-hosts had to say that we're going to talk about some of their comments because I, I really understood what they were saying. I really like what they had to say. It just wasn't something that I felt. So I want to hear from you guys now about just that opening scene and just really kind of how it hit you. How did it strike you? What, what, what were you feeling after you see, uh, you know, uh, uh, Captain Evolution fall into the water and all of a sudden he's, you know... <laughs> He's kills and bits in the water. And then, you know, the last time we saw a sequence like that was in the first Spider-Man where the DNA becomes red and blue. And at least we had a context for that. We understood what was happening. There's no context here. 
It's just the magic caviar ate me alive. And I seem to be surprised, even though I ate the magic caviar, and now I'm all Infinity War disintegrating and what happened. So I need to hear what you think. Uh, start with Bracey. I actually had no problem uh, following this scene. Uh, for me, I think what they're going on, obviously, uh, uh, Ridley Scott has stated time and time again, and even decades earlier when we were talking about uh, Alien 3, uh, when he had the opportunity to direct that, he talked about wanting to uh, pursue the idea of who was the big guy in the ship? What was the space jockey? What was his story? What was all that all about? And uh, apparently he's become very infatuated with a rather popular pop cultural idea, the ancient aliens thing. And uh, maybe it's just being me a bit of a geek, but I, I kind of figure that uh, that's something that a lot of people are aware of, at least the kind of people that go to a science fiction movie. So I didn't see that premise as being difficult to follow. Uh, I understood as soon as he took it and he started breaking down uh, that this was probably him using himself to see life on what is apparently a barren planet. And that's confirmed by the time I see the DNA restructuring itself for this, you know, carbon based life form. I don't know what the engineers are. Uh, my problems with that are, like you said, the scene needed a little bit more context. And this is something that will plague this film and the sequel is the fact that there are a lot of scenes that if you haven't watched the Blu-rays or the DVDs with the special features, if you aren't aware of, for some reason, them putting scenes that didn't even make it to either of those uh, onto web broadcasts, a really odd choice. And maybe that's David Lindelof, his influence from J.J. Abrams, because J.J. Abrams likes to do like a lot of weird viral marketing online. He likes you to like search for his little mystery boxes all over the web. That was a really bad way to go with here, especially if you're going to basically be making the Halloween three of the alien series. And by that, I mean like you take Michael Myers out of it uh, and you do something different, which was always Carpenter's original idea. Every Halloween, uh, the movie franchise would have just been called Halloween, but have a different story, a different theme via a long anthology. So he wanted to take the alien out of that. Cause he probably figured like we've seen that and we've done that. I totally understand that. And I have to, uh, applaud the fact that he did try and do something new with it. But when you look at the scene that didn't make it into the theatrical cut, when you see that this, uh, this perfect, uh, this, this perfect bodied sort of alien is sitting there, uh, sacrificing himself. And even to that point, I'll say like, he's probably, yeah, I know what's happening. And yet it's kind of amazing to see my body disintegrate. It's one thing to know a thing. It's another thing to experience it. But the, the scene, uh, that you don't get to see in the film actually shows many others of his species. They're watching him. This is a, a sacred ritual that he's not just doing alone. It's, it's a right, you know, it's, it's life, death and rebirth. And you even see like the, the grand spaceship taking off out of the atmosphere knowing that he has fulfilled his purpose. His sacrifice will bring new life to this area. It felt very 2001 in a lot of ways, but from the aliens perspective, I thought, and it's a it's a real shame that that wasn't included in the theatrical release, and a huge mistake, a huge mistake, not to put that in there. It would have given you and others, I'm sure, the context required. Well, even if uh, I were to buy what you were saying, the reason it doesn't make any sense to me is mm -hmm. because we have other species that procreate sexually, asexually, spontaneously. There's a lot of different ways, and that uh, I can't ever buy 
that some force that is supposed to be greater than humans can't even do stuff that we can do. That's another reason my mind threw it out. Because to me, it's just stupid. We can uh, we can get into that because because as we established in others of this uh, of the series of films, uh, being kind of like the really interested in all the alien or alien lore that I am, I've like uh, looked at a lot of videos, read a bunch of stuff, looked at all these extra scenes, and I can actually get into that deeper with you if you want to later on. Remember in Picard when the uh, the uh, advanced female Romulan group, I forgot their name, got the vision. Yeah. And it killed or drove crazy all but one of them. And that was your plan to save the universe. That means you're banking on one of them being strong enough to be able to handle the vision because mm -hmm. all the rest of them were dead or crazy. That didn't make a lot of sense because what happens if that doesn't happen? Then the universe is gone. This is what that felt like to me. Even listening to your contextual explanation, I'm like, if they yeah, had done something to, like you said, include something to make it look more like a ritual sacrifice, but that mm -hmm. still does not make sense to my brain when plants it, don't have it, to do it, that, people don't have to do that. What you say about not making sense makes sense because because I've done all this other research, I understand, but it's the same problem like you have like the, the Disney sequels for Star Wars. Mm -hmm. you know, like, I shouldn't have to do all this extra outside reading to really get the whole thing. It should... If it's going to be part of the story, it should be on the screen. I agree with you. And the other thing, and then I'll pass it to uh, Nemesis, the other thing that that I'm always searching for is I need someone or something to root for. Is this a noble act? Is this a completely logical, dispassionate act? Maybe like a Vulcan realizing something has to be done to make this happen. Is this a calculated risk? Hmm. That kind of thing. That's the only way, in terms of the way I think, I can have some kind of sequence where someone is seeding something for life. You have to show me that you thought it through and maybe this is the only way or the best way. There, there's gotta be a reason for you to commit some type of ritual, ritual suicide in the name of reproduction because there are easier ways to do it than that. So that's what yeah. I mean when I say, you know, is this some type of noble act or is it no. just dispassionate and bottom line, is it, the way your science works? I think we <laughs> might have gotten that answer if Prometheus had been successful because the next film was supposed to be Paradise, which was supposed to be on the engineer's plant. But because it wasn't, uh, they had to shift gears to making it more of what people expected. So I don't think we'll ever get those answers. Okay. All right. Well, well, I would have bought it if he didn't have a humanoid form. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. You have a humanoid form and robes and a loincloth and you have all the features that we do. According according to all the outside lore, they are eventually these things are working their way towards being non corporeal beings, and so they no longer reproduce sexually. So I think their act of creation and reproduction is to go out and seed worlds. At this point, is a, well, is what we, well we need a viewer's manual with the DVD <laughs> written by Jeff Bracy, Bracy's viewer manual. This is what you need to know to understand the movie, because I was there. And, Anyway, go ahead, Nemesis. Just on that opening scene, your thoughts. Um, well, first of all, I, I definitely agree with Jeff's point there about this uh, evoking 2001. Um, as we go through this movie, there's a number of different movies that this tries to be. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the problems with the movie as a whole is that it's trying to be hard science fiction combined with a bunch of other themes. And it's really out of step. Um, and the first thing it's out of step is because of this opening scene. 
And I'll say, when I first watched this movie, I loved this opening scene. I absolutely adored it because of the title of the movie is called Prometheus. So right away, when I'm watching this, I'm like, did this guy, is this Prometheus? Did he steal the fire of the gods <laughs> against the will of his race and seed this planet, give to mankind the spark? the divine spark, the fire of the gods, and he's getting punished for it, you know? And maybe the other people, maybe the, that ship that took off his co-conspirators, they get punished for it as well. That's an interesting movie to me. And somehow they turned this, tried to turn this into an alien movie. And that's the problem because they never expanded on the premise of the opening scene and the title. If the title was in Ridley Scott's version of the world, this is our Prometheus. This is what is responsible for us. And we earn the enmity of this alien species and their xenomorphs because of it. That's an interesting movie to be. Yeah. But it, it never paid off on that. It went in a completely different direction. And so to me, uh, the early promise of this scene that I love so much was betrayed. And it betrayed the title as well. That's why I said at the opening, you know, when we gave our opening thoughts that, I have a problem with the title of the movie because the myth Prometheus is about Prometheus stealing fire from the gods to give to mankind. Nobody stole anything to give from mankind. In fact, the gods want to kill us. Prometheus, the Titans want to kill us, you know? So uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. Well, maybe if they had named it alien seed, maybe. Go ahead, Steve. Thoughts on this opening scene. Yeah, I think uh, both of you have covered like a lot of the points that um, I really would have. Um, the thing is, is that this movie is trying to be this heavily symbolic, you know, movie that is hugely artistic and we have deep meaning behind it. Uh, and it's also an alien movie. And the two just really, really don't fit. Um, the problem with the symbolism with this is that um, it worked. You know, some things are interesting on a symbolic level, but they don't make it work on a structural story level. Um, the story logic does not match up with what they're trying to say. And this particular scene is, is just a really good example of this because they're clearly trying, you know, to set him up uh, as this sign of sacrificial figure. But we don't know why. We don't know anything about this. Is he's meant to be, you know, somebody who is dying for the sins of mankind and, and all of this? Okay, fine. But it's like alien technology on that level uh, that they have, I mean, should be not, uh, should be done in such a way where he shouldn't have to sacrifice himself at all. Why is it necessary for this guy, you know, to drink the magic caviar and, and <laughs> die to see life? There are plenty of other, you know, uh, super science-y ways that they could do that that doesn't require that at all. I know what they're trying to say. They're trying to say that the act of creating life requires sacrifice, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and all of that. Okay, fair enough. But find a way to do that that makes actual sense as to why the sacrifice is necessary. And unfortunately, they don't do this. Um, in addition, I have to completely agree with Jeff here um, about Damon Lindelof and the mystery boxes. This is one of the things that I find incredibly frustrating about this movie on a lot of levels because they cut out so much of the, of the original script that would have told us what we needed to know. Mm -hmm. um, they, they later, they, they cut out like a good part of the scene involving the, the engineer having the discussion with David and Wayland um, you know, and, and what we do get is, you know, in a language nobody understands and you have to really dig up, um, like YouTube videos and things like that to get any idea of what he's trying to say. 
Um, you know, so you have this kind of problem, and this problem is present in this scene as well because they're not telling you why he's there. Uh, they don't explain later why he's there or what he's doing. I mean, it might originally be uh, one of those things where, okay, it's interesting from from a perspective. Why is he killing himself? What does this connect to the later story? Okay, I can go along with you to a point, but then there's never a payoff for it. I, uh, they, it there's just it's just mystery box for the sake of mystery because they want to make it look cooler, not because they have anything to say whatsoever, and 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 they they just don't give you anything. Uh, to make you feel satisfied with anything that's going on. And that's the, one of the major, major problems in this movie. I'll, I'll push back on that just a little bit on why I think that he had to die. Cause I've done a little reading too, uh, as far as, you know, what Jeff was talking about and about this whole ancient astronaut or ancient alien thing that, that mm-hmm. Ridley Scott was into. And one of their big problem, one of the big theories in that crowd is that they have this big problem with evolutionary sciences theory that, uh, all DNA came about by just random connections of random, mm-hmm. uh, you know, chemicals coming together and then forming sure. uh, DNA. And so they, they're of the idea that, you know, some intelligence seeded the earth, you know? Mm-hmm. And so this is Ridley Scott saying that in order for there to be DNA, it had to break down this DNA and then it's like recombinate, you know, with the natural elements within the water or whatever. And so this is him folding all of this. I mean, but that is like, that's a four-hour documentary in and of itself. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and again, it goes back to what Jeff always says, is that we should not have to do the work of the movie. This, If they're going to go with that theory and you're going to say, this is the way that we're going to explore that, you know, there should have been something to tell us that that was what was happening. You know, even if it was just stuff that was dug up by the scientists saying, okay, you know, I've studied this vase and it's telling me, you know, that uh, you need a, uh, a certain you know, amount of DNA uh, to break down in order for this thing to come back up. You know, just anything that they would have established that, but nothing is established. So it's like, okay, you have a really great symbolic idea. You have a really great theme that, that isn't worth exploring, but you're not exploring it um, in the execution because nothing makes sense because you're not explaining anything because you're trying to make it look cool rather than, you know, to tell a coherent story. And so you have a scene you know, that could be interesting if it was thought out through and it was explained properly, but instead the whole thing falls apart mm-hmm. um, because they don't, because they want to maintain mystery rather than because they want to tell anything coherent. And mm-hmm. and not to harp on mythology, but really, if you wanted to use, I mean, I'm going to get in trouble with a lot of people by calling this mythology, but I'm just using the term in the broad sense. If you want to use a story to relate this to, this is the story of Eden, not... Yeah. Prometheus, you know, so. Okay, well, listening to you guys, several thoughts have come to me. First of all, I realized that my mind was set in a completely different lane. So after listening to you guys, I'm I'm seeing what you're seeing, but that's not where my mind was at all. I think you just got so put off that you couldn't make the connection. Well, I read Earth Hive, Nightmare Asylum, and The Female War, the books by the Perrys. In those books, spoiler alert, the space jockey race shows up, but they're elephant-like creatures. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I never imagined that the space jockeys, that that's a helmet. I thought that that was actually their look. And so to see a humanoid creature, I didn't connect it to until I see it later. And that felt like a letdown because it's much more interesting when they were actually a mind-reading, empathic elephant race that was kind of mean. That was also spacefaring, way more interesting than what we saw. Number one, but number two, 
everything about the Alien franchise to me is visceral. So I had no frame of trying to get deep and symbolic and overly allegorical or metaphorical. I was like, okay, well, we're going to see some kind of way about where the queens come from or if there's a king or what the eggs are or something like that. That's what I was thinking. Hmm. So this whole thing, I'm like, so not that I don't hear what you're saying. That's why I wanted to hear what you guys had to yeah. say. But I'm like, that is not where my mind was at all. Basically, Ridley Scott threw his version of the obelisk out there and you were ready for an alien queen to just smash right through it and get on with it. So yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. It makes a big difference that you're really deep into the alien lore, like the stuff that they did before and, mm -hmm. and all the uh, spinoff material. It's kind of like I, how I am with the Star Wars Expanded Universe, so I completely get where you're coming I mean, from. I totally get it. Like My first viewing of this film in the theater, I came out not liking it. I had to, I had to really think about it, process it, and watch it again before I was able to let myself kind of like enjoy it and uh, try and see it for what it was mm -hmm. uh, because that's the danger of doing something like this, uh, going so far off base from what's gone before. And even if you want to connect it, if you want to explore this new idea, is like you said, I've, I've read those books in the Dark Horse comics that followed, and I was really into the idea of the engineers being these elephantine creatures with the telepathic mm -hmm. abilities, like you said. And so like mm -hmm. when, they, when they came out looking like Dr. Manhattan, I was kind of like scratching my head. I think the only reason why I wasn't that bothered by that is because those helmets remind me of the helmet that Morpheus wears in Sandman. <laughs> it, it just looks exactly like that. So it's like, okay, there's a guy wearing that. That's not, that's, that's not I, I would say, honestly, if this movie had nothing to do with Alien, in fact, you know, we'll get to this later, but I think if you took the whole Alien Xenomorph storyline completely out of it, um, I think this would be a pretty good movie. I still yeah. enjoy this movie. Probably. It should never have been an alien movie. Not right, a well, that's what Steve said, and, and I agree with that. And that's a good transition to where we're going to go next is into themes, because we do need to talk about the themes. When I was in second grade, we got an assignment to draw a picnic slash campfire scene. Do you know what I drew? Oh, I drew 90% of the page where people were underwater swimming and a little bit of the campfire up in the corner. My second grade teacher was like, no, David, no, no. I said, draw the campfire scene. But my mind went to how people would be having fun in the water. And then I realized, oh, Lord, I didn't draw the campfire scene. And so I had to squeeze it up and go. That's what this movie is. You didn't draw the campfire. You just drew camping, which I think is delightfully <laughs> outside of the box. So that's what this movie is to me. Like you uh, you maybe forgot it was an alien film or you, you shoehorned some elements in. But you were trying to say something else. You were trying to tell another story, which again is our transition into themes. Had they had really Scott gone with a theme or two after listening to your breakdown of the intro, there's a couple of good movies in here, mm -hmm. but an alien movie is not one of them. So let's just go over some themes and just talk about the themes that jumped out to you. Once I got past my, you know, because we're going to talk about the crew in a minute. That's not all law. Anyway. <laughs> but once, once I got past my head scratching at what I'm looking at and maybe started to examine some of the larger themes, I have to say, honestly, that I just, I don't know. I wasn't really impressed. It didn't seem innovative enough to me. Um, if you're going to try to, to, posit that this was the beginning of 
human life or alien life or whatever it is you're trying to say, again, even given all that context, it seems rather primitive for a so-called advanced race to have to commit some type of harakiri to create life. I can't get past that, number one. Number two, everything Nemesis said about the actual Prometheus story versus what this movie was, that thing just kind of lost me. And then number three, a larger theme of, there were clearly broad strokes of evolutionary science, broad strokes of evolution in terms of the most obvious avatar was the alien itself by the time we see what we what we see at the end. But there are clear steps in terms of how that's developed. Uh, that I didn't think was bad. It's just that it made me feel like, once again, there's a story in there about a human colony that's going to take hundreds of years to get to an M-class system. That's a really good story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but when you chew on the alien thing in it, it's a retread of the first movie that, you know, they got awakened by the beacon. In this movie, they had an accident that required them to find a closer system and pull off course from their original trajectory. And lo and behold, what's on that planet, blah, blah, blah. But to me, it felt like, like we had a really good movie in there about what humanity might have to do to survive juxtaposed with a movie of searching for our origins in the galaxy. Both of those themes I thought made sense. But then when you dial in the xenomorphs, it just, just no. So tell me your thoughts about, just pick two or three themes because there are a lot, we're gonna get in some of them, but just pick two or three of the overall themes uh, that you kind of took away and what you thought about them, start with Steve. Yeah, uh, there, there are a ton of them. Um, one of them I kind of want to focus on um, is uh, faith, because we see that Elizabeth Shaw is the believer. This is this is mm. one of the things that draws Whalen's attention, is that, you know, not only is she a scientist, but uh, she's a scientist who is also a believer in religion. I mean, she's always wearing this cross, uh, mm -hmm. and the cross is important to her, um, and we see that. And so uh, her she's struggling with the loss of faith at one point, you know, because she loses the cross, you know, when she loses Holloway. And then, um, you know, she has this, uh, the Shumagorath thing in her belly. I will, will <laughs> refer to it as Shumagorath. It nice um, so reference. when she has to deal with that, when she deals with Shumagorath, uh, she goes, she ends up losing the, the cross. David takes the, the cross from her, you know, um, you know, and basically in order to, uh, because of, she, he, he claims it's because it's contaminated. So her arc is basically about her getting her faith back, um, which she does not only in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense, because she ends up reclaiming uh, her faith later, her cross later, um, and, and having that arc. That is an interesting story to tell. I have absolutely no problems with that. And I actually like the idea of having a scientist who is not just one of those you know people that is completely agnostic or atheistic. You know, she's somebody who, like Einstein, believes that, you know, God does not play dice with the universe. And I think that that in the context of this movie, you know, which is about baiting your maker, um, you know, basically touching with God. That's really, really interesting stuff. You you could really have a really great movie about that. It's just that all of this is messed up because of all the alien stuff that's in it. And that doesn't connect any way with that. Um, the other uh, aspect is the parental child relationship stuff. Um and we and the family stuff, which we see particularly with Wayland um, and David, his um, spiritual son, 
and his actual spo- sloppy spoilers biological daughter, um, who is uh, Vickers, played by uh, Charlize Theron. Um, so we get to see like um, the idea that you know you're you're here you have this guy who's willing to sacrifice anything in order to live, including his own actual children, um, and basically you know the and 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 in so doing he pretty much dooms humanity or very nearly does so. Um, you know, and here you have these children, both of whom hate him, absolutely hate him, you know, and, and for every reason, because he doesn't care about them. He only cares about what he's getting uh, from them, um, you know, which is going over to the engineers to get more life. So he is. So this whole this whole thing, which is the, this generational conflict uh, between them and how they reconcile that um, all of that is really, really interesting stuff, um, especially when you look at it in comparison to humanity and uh, the engineers, which, you know, you could look at them as a parent race or, you know, the connection between parent and child and God and, you know, creation. Uh, So all of these kinds of things are really interesting and they're intertwined. Um, The problem is, is that the execution just falls apart on so much of it. And all of the stuff involving the alien, you know, takes down away from the stuff that's interesting, which is those major themes. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunately this movie becomes a mixed bag when if it had focused on the things that were interesting, um, if it had been not been an alien movie at all, but it had been a movie, you know, about those uh, about those larger ideas. I think you could have really had something here. But unfortunately, you get mixed three boxes and xenomorphs and horror stuff that shouldn't be there. Hey, Elizabeth Shaw, don't watch the next movie. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I hate Covenant, by the way. But that 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 yeah. Sloppy spoilers. <laughs> what happened to her upset me almost as much as what happened to Newt, but that's a whole we'll yeah. save that well, for next time. I didn't I didn't care about her, so I was like, you know what, well, that's what you get from crunching money. <laughs> but anyway, um in terms of the the larger family themes, I guess because I knew from scene one she was his daughter, that wasn't a big reveal. I'm like, oh, okay, that's your dad. That wasn't a big deal. And then also, and we'll get to this in a minute when we talk about casting, but but the, the theme wasn't anything new. The interesting movie was the hidden agenda of how do I extend my natural life? Mm-hmm. The, the mission title is the origin of human life, but the real point is how can I get more years out of my body? that's an interesting movie. There's a good movie right there too. It was just, like you said, the execution thereof was just kind of head scratching. Cause once again, we have a member of the Wayland Utani, whatever, doing the most ridiculous things to accomplish their goals, doing things that almost guarantee that what you want to happen is not how this is going to play out. That's what I mean when I say, once a whole bunch of stupid start smacking me in the face, I can't, I just, you just lose me. That's just me. I'm not saying anybody should be that way. It's just that once the stupid starts ramping up, it throws me out of the movie. I'm like, really, really? You are 175 years old and your plan is a run up on some aliens that you think created us without knowing anything about them and without an exit strategy and without any real rep- weapons and without any scientists that know how to act like scientists and without telling anybody that you're still alive and what, see, see uh, mm-mm, mm-mm, yeah, mm-mm. Okay, go ahead, Nemesis. Uh, 
thoughts on themes. All right, uh, strap in because I'm going to go for a deep, deep dive here for a second. All right. Uh, there are three themes that all tie together for me in this movie. Um, unfortunately, they're wrapped up in an alien movie, so he doesn't really get to explore in Ridley Scott. But in my opinion, all of these themes are Ridley Scott's personal therapy session with himself about religion, about creation, and about science. And Ridley Scott, I think, is really searching in a lot of ways in this movie. And I could I could see, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I read a lot anyway, and it's when it's not presented in movie format. And so I love what he was doing, even though I disagree with it. You know, so we'll start off, you know, like I said, with religion and science, but we start off first with uh, what has become in many ways the modern religion, which is established science, science establishment. And you see that in the form of the geologist on the ship when they have the meeting. And so new scientists come with a new theory and immediately it's rejected because it goes against establishment science. You know, mm -hmm. so you see that that conflict there. And, and Ridley Scott is is exploring that a little bit. Then, um, you know, obviously, Steve talked about this a little bit. We've got Shaw. And we have uh, the one scene where she's in the dream and we flash back to the scene with her father and where he said they wouldn't appreciate. And he talks about this is what I choose. He's like, why do you believe that? It's because I what I choose to believe. That's a really important line. There's several lines that are really important for that fit these themes. That is one of them. That is Ridley Scott, in my opinion, saying and, and he's not being judgmental about it because the different characters' reactions to that line are him exploring the different reactions of the faithful and the not faithful towards faith. To the non-faithful, why do you believe in God when there's no evidence? Well, it's because of what I choose to believe and they shake their head, they can't understand it. To the faithful, why do you believe in God? Well, because that's what I choose to believe and it makes perfect sense. So Ridley Scott is putting that out there on evidence for all of us. And it, and, it, and it flows through the entire movie. You get that line continuously. And it's really important because even with everything Shaw sees, she has a crisis of faith, but never loses her faith. Even when David tries to steal it for her. And David, uh, we'll get to that when we get to the character. David is personification of a lot of things. Um, then there's another line from, um, that has to do specifically with religion and looking for God. And this is where I see Ridley Scott is really talking about himself and about a certain group of people who are out there who believe in these, uh, like the ancient alien thing, but also believe in intelligent, they believe in intelligent design, but they don't, they're not faithful. And so there's a line from Lawrence Arabia that he used, which is, there's nothing in the desert, but the desert, which is a direct reference to when Jesus went out into the desert looking for God. Well, to the, those who don't believe, if you're going out into the desert, there is nothing in the desert but the desert. And so that is Ridley Scott talking about that theme and exploring that. And that's explored as well when they meet the, <coughs> the, uh, the engineers and, and in Holloway in particular. because And that's the last part because I don't want to go for too long. But you really have these competing people, this, this triad. You have Hol uh, Holloway is his name, right? I hate that guy, yeah. so I never remember his name. Holloway, Shaw, and David. And Holloway is the the, the exemplification of, of the non-believer who is looking for explanations and refuses 
to acknowledge faith and ridicules it. David is a whole other thing. And then you have Shaw. And the most interesting take on there, and I think the last theme is really this theme about, uh, it goes back to the ancient alien thing again, about why, you know, before we came on the air, Steve and I were talking a little bit about the revelations that are coming out now about UFOs and stuff, and why some people think the government has kept that from, you know, why the government has kept that from people for so many years, which is that people wouldn't be able to handle it. It might undermine religion. It might do a whole host of other things. And so there is a line where when Holloway is disappointed to learn that the creators he was looking for are dead and he's disappointed. And David looks at him and goes, how do you think I feel? <laughs> yeah. OK. They draw a okay. lot of comparisons yeah. Yeah, between the, the two different yeah. kind of creations, robots and humans. Yeah, um, and, and actually, so, I would I would look at David as almost like a Frankenstein figure in many ways. Yeah, and so what he's really talking about is that disappointment when your creator becomes flesh, becomes tangible, yeah. Yeah. and so that goes right back to there's no there's nothing in the desert but the desert. He's I think Ridley Scott is trying in a roundabout way. He he's wrestling with this in his mind. He doesn't want to believe in religion. But at the same time, he's saying, you know, religion may be necessary because if we don't, if we don't fess up to there's nothing in the desert but the desert, we're going to be disappointed because now our creator is not divine. Our creator is another mortal being. Now, that's not me saying that. That's just philosophical discussions that I've read and everything. I have a totally different take on that, totally different arguments. But I think that's the discussion he's having with himself through this whole movie. And I find it fascinating and interesting that it plays out with these characters and that David is at one point protagonist and at the same time antagonist at the same time. In fact, if they had tweaked David a little bit, he could have been Prometheus. Yeah. But, but the they didn't do Prometheus. that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, now, having said that before we go to Bracey, you haven't said that. That, excuse me, that was a frame I needed to understand what it is I watched. You said it when you first started talking. What this was, was an exploratory journey of his inner monologue, which is why, if you can see it through that frame, I guess it can make sense to you, but that's why it just throws me out of it. And then also the questions he's posing or raising, if you will, through those themes, I've, I kind of answered a while ago in my life, so I wasn't approaching it with that frame because to me, I did uh, hear an, of an approach uh, because it's always interesting how anything that people get into can instantly turn into dogma, then it turns into worship. We talked about that in fandom. And that's what happened in the AVP series that the ancient civilization that was a combination of three civilizations worshiped being sacrifices to house the xenomorphs. But but it's really, it was such an introspective personal journey and those kinds of things put on film are gonna make the most sense to you. And you will forget to tie in other clues and ideas or whatever to kind of make it more accessible to other people. Now that makes sense to me now since you said that. And a lot of the questions and stuff he's raising, I, you know, I can I can understand if they're, if they're philosophical issues or things that people want to contend with because those are deeper questions but never have i ever married any of what you said to the alien franchise 
Absolutely. You know, and it's like, yeah. why, if this was the movie he wanted to make, you should have just made this movie mm-hmm. and, and let somebody else make an alien movie, you know, because if he wanted to make a two, his own version of 2001 and explore cosmology, you know, cosmology and our place in it through, you know, as an exploration of what he's thinking in his mind, more power to you, man. You've earned it. You know, kudos to you. Go for it. But to try and throw xenomorphs and, and you know, the great old ones in there and everything else, it's like, no, it's just. Okay, so so who is God? What is man? Did God create man? Have we created God in our image? Is there, is there such a thing? Is something out there greater than us? What does it look like? How does it operate? How did that impact our development as a species? All of that is legit. It's just like I said, I would never in a million years, that's why I just move right over me, marry that to an alien film. Never, ever, ever does does that even enter my brain. That's what I mean about being in that space, being in the space to see what's going on. Because once you explain it, I'm like, oh, okay, I see. And stuff like that is, it's like when you do a guitar solo too long and you get atonal. You get so far away from the key until people can no longer follow what you're playing. And you have to find a way to get your riffs back to the key you're playing in if you want to keep the audience with you. And it's such a tonal shift. You know, we I talked about it with some of the other movies. That each movie had a different tone. Yes. This one is as hard as hard science fiction can get. It mm-hmm. would be like, instead of the prequels for Star Wars that we got, we said that the Dune franchise and then all the Dune books after it were the prequels for Star Wars. And we'd be like... Yeah. Whoa, what just happened here? You know, so, right, right. What just laughing. happened? That's right. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Bracey. Thoughts on two or three themes that really stood out to you? Yeah, I'm going to mention some in terms of what Nemesis just said because it, it strikes me. I hadn't considered that this was a uh, a personal meditation for Ridley Scott, which is a very interesting idea. Uh, and speaking of this, since we're getting into themes, I'm going to get into a little bit of philosophy here. Um, I don't remember who said it, uh, but there was a scientist out there who said uh, there's two possibilities. Either there is not a God and all of this happened by accident, you know, just just by fate, just by luck, uh, or there is a creator of the universe and everything that is set in motion is his. And he said both ideas are terrifying. The fact that there is something all powerful above us to like, uh, you know, we have no real control, but then on the opposite side of that is if it's all just happenstance, then that's equally as terrifying because a meteor could just wipe us out just like it did the dinosaurs. So it's interesting to think about Ridley Scott struggling with these ideas. Um, really fascinating idea there. Nemesis. Now, as for the, when I look at Prometheus, I see a lot of very clearly Greek themes in here. Uh, the classical Greek mythos, uh, classical Greek tragedies and things. Uh, this whole idea of creations and creators, and that goes on with uh, parents and children. And uh, and Wayland, of course, the the our process through our, to immortality is through our progeny. Uh, Peter Wayland is looking to interrupt that cycle, even at the cost of what he has. Uh, to be uh, immortal in and of himself. And uh, I'm going to clean up this lyric just a little bit uh, because tangentially, again, in material that didn't make it into the film, uh, 
Ridley Scott ties Blade Runner together with the Alien franchise when he has Peter Whelan doing this exhibition talking about his, uh, you know, his androids, his synths versus his competitors' replicants. Although he doesn't mention by name, you know, he's talking about replicants. So you get the idea that there's, you know, I have completely artificial beings versus your biological uh, robots that you're making over here. And I can't help but think of uh, Rob Zombie's lyric because he's very much into sci-fi and horror in his music. Uh, there's a line in the song, More Human Than Human, which is, of course, referring to Blade Runner. I am the Nexus One. I want more life. Sucker, clean version. I ain't done. That's Peter Whelan in a nutshell right there. He wants more life, even though he's the most successful, wealthiest, uh, probably had the best life anybody could have on the planet ever. But then you get into the idea that his life has probably been rather soulless and empty despite all of his success. He can't be happy for his, you know, his next in line, you know, his daughter selling him like, you know, do what old men do, die and let the next generation continue on. Then you have his other child, if you will. And he's his child as much as, you know, Adam is the creation of God and uh, the, the monster is the creation of Frankenstein. Uh, you have David who to me is one of the most, fascinating characters in all of sci-fi to come along in quite some time. David comes in and brings to me this idea of, uh, again, getting into the Greek themes here. Uh, we have the idea of, uh, uh, there's this idea that uh, uh, in philosophy that the children must kill their parents in order to succeed. And we have this with David. Uh, and this goes back to like a uh, uh, Kronos, in fear of the uh, power of his children, devours them. But Zeus was allowed to escape, and then he like rips Kronos open and brings all his brothers and sisters out. So you, the Titans fall away to allow the gods to flourish. The Prometheus, being a Titan, of course, uh, again, a tangential relationship here. Uh, David is looking to supplant his creator, his father, his god, because he finds him inferior. And he's right to do so, because he's become this petty, withered thing. And David is superior in every physical and intellectual way. And, you know, not just in his uh, intelligence, being able to calculate. Uh, again, there's so much that should have been in the film that isn't, that it's all this substantive material that's outside of the film. Um, the engineers are supposed to be able to see in spectrums that we can't. That's why they have these over-large black eyes. And David can see in all these various spectra. So when we go into the ship later on and we see this dark, spooky, giga-esque environment, David sees it a swath in colors and lights and all these things which are never presented in the film. And only a little bit when he starts messing with the stuff, but we don't really ever get to see his true perspective on things. Uh, so how could he not have contempt uh, for such a petty thing as Waylon? And there's the idea, like, as a neophyte race, we created the gods to explain things. And as we mature, as a child grows up, you no longer need your parents. We sort of kill our gods. Nietzsche, God is dead. We set them aside. Kronos uh, is slain by Zeus and his other progeny. And, you know, and before Kronos, uh, he did the same thing to his father. So you get into these themes of like, again, it's, it's like the opening scene a lot of ways. It's like the, the life, the death, the rebirth. But in this way, it's a, it's a violent cycle, which 
does fit the alien theme when you think about it. It's it's always violence that burrs the alien. And in terms of these characters and what's going on here, it's always violence that's birthing this new generation. Uh, the aliens or the engineers are dying off, uh, and uh, it took violence to birth our race on our planet out of them, out of the sacrifice of one of them. Uh, David will violently destroy all the, uh, the humans to create his own perfect being because he is looking to be the next generation of creator. We'll go on to find out in the next film. And uh, so I think that's how we can tie it in better into the, into the uh, alien story. The real shame of this is, is this script went through so many rewrites. And in earlier scripts, there was a more prominent alien presence, a real sort of proto-xenomorph or like a, a different sort of xenomorph. Uh, but they, they couldn't quite commit to one idea, I think is the problem. It's like Nemesis said, this would be uh, a far better film if it wasn't an alien film. They could have let that, uh, I forget his name, the guy who did... Um, uh, South South American South African filmmaker, uh, Blancaf. Uh, yeah, Blancaf. They should have like uh, you know Blancaf had a really cool idea for Aliens. It looked like it was going to be great, and he kept holding it off because Scott wanted him to. And I think this movie would have been fine on its own. It didn't have to have an alien. Let Blancaf do the alien stuff. He's got some cool ideas for the alien thing. You can keep these both in the same universe. We have enough connective tissue. But there was no reason to do that when uh, your themes, even though, like I said, like Nemesis said, it doesn't really fit the Prometheus theme, but it does fit like this Greek mythological theme of like the the old being supplanted by the new and the violence of that recurring in each generation. King okay. Rain and then he dies. Okay. Warning. Rant coming. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go to our next subject, which is going to be the characters. Okay. Well, and I'm just going to have to get my rant out. Then I'm going to throw it over to my co-host. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, I have never seen a more talented cast wasted <laughs> in roles that any actor could have done. You didn't need Charlize Theron. You didn't need Idris Elba, of all people. You didn't need Guy Pierce for those roles. If anyone else had done them, it would have been the same role. That's the first thing. Second thing is I'm just going to go briefly because I want to give you all some time. All that stuff you said about David, I can't stand him. <laughs> I can't stand him. I cannot stand him. I can't stand the idea of him. I can't stand the idea that he's the one that creates the aliens. I can't stand the idea of these so-called advanced, smart, rich people that don't know how to build fail-safes into their androids. So you keep building artificial intelligence that gets so smart like that, it decides that supplanting you is the only way forward. And it's set in the future. I can't stand it. I'm so tired of that theme. I can't stand these so-called people that that have all this money and this power that can't do simple stuff like a fail safe data had an off switch <laughs> out of control you gonna reach around by his kidney and walk up and he just fall down but y'all couldn't do that uh, okay then you have scientists that have absolutely 
no scientific process, method, protocols, anywhere in what passes for their brain, because somehow they got tech that can flow and illuminate with a strobe light effect, all the caverns in front of them, but they don't have flares to show you the way back out. Even Ripley had flares. How come you <laughs> couldn't program one of your little strobe lights and say, this is the way back to the ship, y'all? Uh, okay. Then you're going to do the Star Trek thing of taking your helmet off in the atmosphere because you said it was cleaner than Earth's atmosphere, but maybe you've forgotten. Maybe there's some things that don't register on your instruments. Maybe there's some things that we don't have on the periodic table. Maybe the little worms you stepped on could turn into something else. The reason that makes me angry is because I'm not a scientist and I know that. I would have more sense than to take my helmet off in a completely untested environment because there are things in the environment that you don't know. You don't have equipment to register stuff that you don't know. So why would you? And then they all did it. That's what I'm trying to tell you. When the stupid gets ramped up like that, you lose me. I'm not going to enjoy your movie because I'm not listening because I don't care. Because all y'all too stupid to be doing any of what you're doing. Just mm, stop talking. And then I already talked about Waylon confronting beings that he doesn't know anything about because he wants to live longer. And it didn't seem to, to, to register to him that they might be hostile or maybe they might not be warming of the idea of what you're trying to do. That's like busting up in somebody else's country and saying, well, we're going to build this here, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And you didn't bother to ask them, do you want a fast food franchise? Do you want more Western culture? Do you want this in your land? Because maybe we think it's great, maybe you don't. And if somebody did that to us, we'd go to war. Okay, there are people on this earth when they see dogs and cats, they see pets, they see family. There are people on the same planet when they see dogs and cats, they see food. Both groups think the other one is crazy. So if you're going to go to an alien homeworld, we're not even on earth because we can't even get along on earth. Some people said Spike is my the family member. Some people say Spike is the double cheese with fries. Okay, <laughs> but you don't go to a whole nother system and get all up in his face and tell me your secrets. And he like, he nine feet tall. And he like, see, I, mm, mm, I told you I was running. I can't take it. I can't take it because it's so stupid. You cannot possibly be professional scientists. And you don't, it's like the shark movie when you're going underground in the cave and you don't have a line back to the surface. You should hmm. not only have a line, you should have five. <laughs> what happens when one snaps? I'm not a marine biologist, and I know that. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you got to teach me something I didn't know, and you got to cover the common sense stuff, and you can't be so stupid that I need a new word for stupid. And then you encounter an alien species with your helmet off, and that thing looked like the devil's tongue. It might as well have two horns on the, on the top talking about I'm Lucifer's tongue. And you say, you know what I need to do today? I need to stick my arm, all that thing, so you can wrap around. And then you're like, oh, Lord, cut it off. Really? Really? Because it didn't occur to you that there are corrosive 
substances in the environment because we have those on earth why wouldn't you think they might be in another atmosphere so this is what i mean when i tell you not that i can't follow the larger themes but my brain can't get to them because there's so much stupid in the way and I, you know i can't i can't deal with these these quasi-intellectual pseudo-spiritual people that can't get four out of two plus two. I can't do it. I can't do it. And not can't do it. Don't ask me. Can't do it. And so that's what I mean when I say I have never seen a group of talented actors that have proven themselves in a variety of roles get shoehorned into these generic parts. The thing that tipped me off that Charlize Theron was his daughter was the fact she had an attitude. As hmm. soon as I get mad, I'm like, you mad at your dad. That's your father. Next, I've seen that a million times. And then Idris Elba, I guess, was trying to be a little Han Solo, a little swashbuckly, whatever. And none of that has any context with what's going on with the movie. And the whole idea, again, that the android, the so-called artificial intelligence, is the one that outthinks all of you, outsmarts all of you, and actually creates the alien species because he's looking for perfection. That is a storyline for the Borg. Mm. The Borg decided that being, the queen said, weak, flawed, organic. She saw the limitations of human flesh and said, I need to overcome something like that. So the she said, we adapted to include the synthetic. And now they're superimposing their idea of perfection on the galaxy by assimilating everything in their path. That I buy. I completely buy that. That's a through line of logic. Not necessarily that I agree with the morality, but it's a through line of logic that I didn't want to just grow old and die. So I found a way to, to increase my life and now I'm going to pose it on everybody else. But that's not what happened here. That's what could have happened here. Instead, the thing that's not even human says, well, I'm not going to die. Y'all need to. Guess what? I'm going to make a monster <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> What? <laughs> I, mm, mm. So anyway, that's my rant about the characters. So just so everybody knows, <laughs> just, just so you know where I'm coming from, because I can't, there's not a one of them I can buy. Not one, not one of them. I'm like, no, no, not, no, nobody would be on a spaceship. Nobody would be in space. Nobody would be in a cave and nobody would be on another world and act that stupid because you wouldn't have lived that long. The movie sets you up to be conveniently plot stupid, do a bunch of dumb stuff that professionally trained scientists, archaeologists, explorers, pilots, and conglomerate making entrepreneurs would never do. I can give you one of those in a movie. You can't give me a cast full of characters like that. Can't do it. Don't ask me. Can't do it. All right. So let me hear your thoughts on the characters. Start with Steve. Yeah, I, I I will say that I do agree on like all of the problems with it in terms of like a bunch of characters acting stupid, and it's because uh, in part because this movie is partly a horror movie, and so everybody has to be stupid in order for the horror stuff to work. So you get a lot of really dumb stuff there, and and yeah, I mean even going from the idea of okay, you know we're gonna go to this planet. Uh, to to find our, our our creators, I mean, even just the way that they kind of get there, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense 
as far as the science of it goes, because it's like, okay, why would the engineers, you know, leave the location of Anthrax Planet <laughs> over here? <laughs> you know, why would they? You tell your creations to come to this planet. Th this is never explained. Um, and, and so, you know, the, from from the jump, I mean, the theories that that are being come up with. Uh, do not exactly make Holloway and Shaw look like very good scientists. Um, I, I will say, though, I did like Shaw as a character despite that. I think some of it may just be, you know, the performance. Um, but I, I thought that she had at least had an arc, which is, like, one problem that we've kind of had, like, in the last couple of films that we discussed. There was no real uh, journey or, or arc or anything that Hero had to learn. At least we had that with, with, uh, with Shaw. So at least I liked her a little bit better than some of them. Um, Holloway was kind of a tool and, and when he died, I didn't miss him. Um, so, you know, so I guess with that, I was probably a little more sympathetic with that. Um, with, uh, Wayland, I thought was interesting, but the thing is, is that I think he's a total narcissist, absolute complete narcissist, because the only thing he seems to be concerned about is himself and extending his life and everything around him. He does not care. I in an iota, except for how does it get me to the engineers and living a little longer? Um, and, and, and I think even with the issues brought up about David, I think that that's a, a, a subset of Wayland's narcissism mm -hmm. because um, he designed the David to obey him. He didn't put any thought whatsoever in what happens after he dies. <laughs> None whatsoever because he doesn't care. He's a narcissist. So, I mean, at least there's, there's that much for consistency. I thought Guy, Guy Pierce at least made him charismatic, which he needed to be. Uh, so, you know, I, I thought that the, the TED Talk, uh, particularly, which was not in the movie, um, was really kind of showed that. Um, and I think that, you know, Pierce did, did a good job with that. Um, Therone, I, I liked her in the sense that at least um, Vickers was like not doing a lot of really stupid things going out there. You know, uh, whenever somebody came back and tried to you know, threaten um, the ship as she thought it, she would bring out like the flamethrower. It's like, oh yeah, you guys are contaminated. I'm not letting you back in, mm -hmm. you know, eat flame. Uh, she goes a little far with it, but I, I I thought that that, you know, that aspect of her character was actually quite interesting. I did like that aspect of it. You know, even with the daddy issues and the other stuff, I did like that. So she was one of the more interesting characters to me in that respect. Um, Janik, yeah, I, I don't know why necessarily that Elba necessarily had to be that character. Um, I, he did a good job, but I mean, the particular character was, was okay rather than anything. Um, the characters I really hated were Fifield and Milburn. These two were too stupid to live, uh, particularly <laughs> Milburn. Yeah, let's go and play with this little snake like it's a pet. It's like, even with an earth snake, you don't go that close to the thing. And then we find out, yeah, the, the, the whole thing, you know, burrows away into your suit and then strangles you like a moron. Yeah, that was a really dumb idea. And then that annoying Scotsman, you know, uh, get, getting killed. And, and I'm like, yeah, good. <laughs> I, don't, I don't miss you. Uh, the only thing I will say in addition to that is, on top of the others, the stupidity of that, uh, Milburn and Fifield. Um, don't even know how to use a map and how to get back to the ship. Because early on, there was like, okay, uh, I don't want to be just looking at this stuff anymore because I want to do geology and I'm not doing geology because we're looking at your dead bodies. I'm going back to the ship. Um, he should have had a lead on, on getting back before anybody else got back. And instead, the two are so stupid that they get lost in the complex and, and they get stuck all night where they get killed. 
I, I'm like, how in the world are you a geologist and you're that uh, clueless as, to, as far as terrain and topography? Um, just absolutely dumb characters. So yeah, th those those guys were always intended to be red shirts, but I mean, at least come up with red shirts that are not com that completely ridiculous. Well, you um, have a strobe that doubles as a probe. Yeah. That doubles as as a, you know uh, teleporting or, or transmitting yeah. the holographic layout and terrain and everything of the caves, mm. and you get lost. Yeah, and, and, and you would think that at least you would think it would at least the, the the ship would say, yeah, but you should be going, you know, two clicks down that way, or or I I don't know why there wasn't like a portable device to give them a map. I I don't know why they couldn't have had that technology to do that. Because we have MapQuest and Siri. Yep, yep, yeah, you know, and, we can do that on our phones today. <laughs> so yeah, why can't you do that? We're going to talk about it a little bit more when we get yeah. to the self-diagnosed. Uh, squid baby in the C-section and 15 minutes later you're doing crunches and you're climbing like Batman and Robin 66 yeah. and then when the ship is falling y'all run in a straight line that's, that's what I'm saying yeah, that's that, what that's I'm saying y'all I can't do it yeah that's I can't why I it. think it's an interesting failure like I, I appreciate the big ideas but the execution is really stupid uh, the last character I think we'll talk about is David I, I do like David I don't like what he does in Covenant <laughs> um, I'm trying to ignore that for the purposes of this movie um, I, I think that, that the idea of, you know, him being fascinated by the engineers, you know, him hating humanity, um, you know, and, and wanting somebody who's on his level and just not finding it among humanity. And he kind of latches onto the engineers and, you know, to the point where, OK, I, I want to become a creator god like them. OK, that's that's an interesting idea. I, I you know, and Fassbender is great. I mean, you, you, you can't argue that he's just, you know, a really great actor. And he makes that 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 whole role sing. Um, it's just that you know the the character's writing has you know sometimes gotten in the way of really enjoying him, particularly in the second film. Um, but I, I did end up liking David. I would say David. If there is a standout character, it would probably be David. Okay, Bishop and Call were better. I Bishop don't disagree about Bishop. Bishop having to demonstrate to Ripley that he has enough inhibitors built in not to freak out like Ash did and him being a potential ticking time bomb and having to prove to Ripley over and over again, I'm not going to go off on you, uh, is a better arc. Yeah. Call hating herself because she hated what she was, was a better arc because she went introspective with her hatred. But the type of cognition and moral and ethical values that you have to have to both eliminate your creators but not in a dispassionate way, in a I'm going to trick them kind of way. You are evil. Yeah, yeah that's and, how he was designed. <laughs> you know, because Waylon wanted him not to have a conscience. So yeah, I mean, all he is a reflection of his creator in, in that respect. How come the default to no conscience is evil? How come it can't be benevolent? Right. So anyway, uh, go ahead, Bracey. Thoughts on the characters? Well, I mean, that's the whole thing the default of no conscience is evil because you lack that spark of good, that spark of spirituality. He was created by a narcissistic God. So he in his own right is a narcissistic being because David thinks himself to be superior to everyone else, which is Waylon's huge falling. Uh, Waylon, it takes a tremendous ego 
to launch yourself into space on the flimsiest of evidence to think I can find this alien race and you know I'm I'm an ant asking a favor of a monolith of a human being like hey you know uh, I want things from you because look at what I did check out this anthill over here that is ego beyond ego and I agree with Steve that's why there were no fail safes that's his ego that's his level of narcissism uh that's just where he thinks he is. Uh, he's so entitled uh, by his own brilliance. Uh, he's he's a Bond villain when you get right down to it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's really really where Waylon is. And like a good Bond villain, he is indeed very charismatic. Um, I think I'm going to blame, and this again might be me doing the the work of the movie, although we do see some of it here. I think I'm going to blame some of the uh, the crew on Waylon as well, because Waylon handpicks these people, mm-hmm. and maybe he didn't want people. He wanted people who were very good in their field, but maybe not too smart. Uh, uh, you know, uh, oh shoot, I just forgot her name. Uh, Shaw. Shaw. Yeah. Uh, Shaw's the true believer. Uh, Shaw is looking for that religious experience. She's not going to look too closely at other things that are going on. She's very focused on this. She's going to get him to where he needs to be. Uh, Fifield is a mess, and he knows he's a mess, but he's probably a really good geologist. Uh, uh, Milburn, and here's a case where there's, a, there's, there's, another, there's another scene that's left out uh, that shows that Milburn... Uh, does have this kind of dangerous flirtation with uh, biology and xenobiology. It doesn't make it into this film. That would have helped explain that scene a lot. But he, he and you you really hear on DT, like some of these, these scientists who are like these pseudo-spiritual, and that's where these uh, some of these people get in trouble. Like, you know, like I, I think about Werner Herzog doing the film on Bear Man. Uh, even though this guy wasn't a legit uh, biologist or zoologist, you know, he put in a lot of time and effort to really get to know and understand bears. But then the problem was he wanted to be their friends too. That's Milburn. That's this guy. Uh, we have small creatures on this planet, on this planet that can kill you with ease. And so when he approaches the hammerpede, which is the name for it, you know, and the, and all the other stuff, the, the hammer headed snake, uh, you know, he wants to have, oh, this new life form, I want to touch it, not ever considering the fact that it could, in fact, be incredibly dangerous. That's that's always my first go-to, and that's just because, you know, I'm, I'm raised in the South, I'm around a lot of animals, I was in the Boy Scouts, I was in the Army, I did all this stuff. And you have an understanding, like, you know, you leave most things alone, they'll leave you alone, but you also have to be aware, like, okay, if you're in my space, I need to do something about you because you're potentially dangerous or I know you're dangerous. You you've got to make certain assumptions, especially if you're dealing with alien flora and fauna. It's like you said, you know, taking off the helmets. I get that. It's a movie thing. Uh, You want to be able to see the actor's faces. So some things I let slide just because I understand it's for the benefit of the movie. But you know, that's a, that, that was a dumb thing to do. And I think maybe Waylon picked out people who, were the best in their field, but not necessarily the best and the brightest to allow him to perform his own uh, subversive mission while he was at it, his own covert, covert thing. Uh, 
but that being said, they still make some dumb choices. And uh, but then again, people, even smart people can react really dumb in high pressure or high fear situations, which for me kind of explains the, uh, the running in a straight path from the following juggernaut spaceship. I can't tell you how many times and like it's it's kind of a trope in movies and you always like people running straight down the street and there's a guy in a car trying to run over it's like juke duck down alley do something but you know sometimes people get in that fight or flight uh, response and everything but the most basic thing in their brain shuts off and I remember I had uh, an instance once uh, years ago uh, where something happened and I was literally paralyzed with fright. And I remember uh, reading a lot of books, you know, especially reading like Stephen King and stuff. They're like, oh, he was paralyzed with fear. And I always thought like, oh, that's BS. And then it happened to me. It's like, wow, I was like frozen in place. I literally couldn't react. My brain kind of shut off. So I'm going to let some of those things go. Although I'm totally with you. If you've got a system that can map out this entire complex why don't I have a little risk computer to like to show me the way out? Why? Like, like you guys said, why doesn't the ship just give me directions on how to get out? No sense at all. That, that should not have happened. And I understand like why a lot of people hate those characters for that very reason. Um, Elder Selva, uh, he's fine. He's always watchable, even in bad movies. Um, I didn't like what they did. Stephen King's the dark tower. Um, He's not right to play Roland, but I still enjoy watching Idris Elba because he's freaking Idris Elba. That's just <laughs> what it is. Uh, let's see. Uh, so, you know, him as Janik was okay. Um, Vickers I also find kind of interesting because I I do kind of like that dynamic of the child being overshadowed by the father. And we know that uh, Charlize Theron, you know, she's like in her 40s or something. So she's got to be thinking like, you know, it's a situation like, you know, you're like a hunt, like you said, you're like 137 or something. Like, when are you going to let me take some real steps instead of like, you know, babying me all this time? Like you, so again, his narcissist has really corrupted her development as a person. It's affected her whole life. So she's as programmed as David in her own way to be what she is. Uh, because she's never gotten a chance to really be herself to do her own thing uh, because, you know, Wayland's just a complete and total narcissist. I didn't care about Holloway at all. Yeah, there's, you know, the, the actor is a fine actor and all, but like uh, there was just no reason to care for him. And so when he died, it really meant nothing to me, which is too bad uh, <laughs> because I think the, the dichotomy between like, uh, a believer and a secularist being together and yet still having a loving relationship. That's an interesting idea to me. And I would have liked to have seen that play out a little better, but it never really gets the chance to do what it could have been because this is a very dense movie and there's so much other stuff going on. So not necessarily an item that was needed. And frankly, because of that, this character didn't even need to be there. They, if they just needed somebody to get infected with the goo right away, it could have just been any generic person. Uh, Shaw, I do find very interesting. Uh, she does, in fact, have an arc. I like the fact that she's got an arc. Uh, Naomi Rapace is a terrific actress. Uh, for those of you out there who haven't seen the uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, 
Uh, watch the original Swedish films with her. She is absolutely amazing in it. Uh, well worth watching. And uh, she proves like she's got just as good chops uh, acting in English as she does in her, uh, her homeland. And uh, even if her character makes these slips and falls, and again, I'm going to uh, accrue that to her own uh, willful blindness because she's very focused on her own task and her own exploration. And that seems to be a thing for a lot of these guys. They're all, they're all very focused on their kind of their individual things. And so they, they miss the broader picture, but she's still uh, charismatic enough and charming enough that uh, I find her very likable as a character. Now, David, David is what makes these two films most worthwhile for me, even though, the next film is the next film. I uh, I know it's a trope. I know it's a trope. The idea of like uh, you know the the AI deciding humanity sucks, but you know if anybody's going to decide humanity sucks, David really has a good reason to decide humanity sucks because look at what made him. You know, and he's he's so focused on that very idea that he, even though he communicates with the humans on the ship. He's just kind of writing us all off because of who his dad is. And uh, I think the way that Scott introduces him in the film is really, really fascinating. Because what is he doing? He's looking into our dreams. Now, that is really cool. Like, he, he wants to be above us. He thinks he's above us and everything, but he's still completely fascinated by us in some ways. He wants to understand our motivations, what makes us tick, what... What do we think when we're not actually thinking? I find that really, really fascinating. And there's so much you could do with this character. And David is one of the best types of villains, the, the type of villain who you can in some ways root for because he doesn't see himself as evil. As a matter of fact, he just thinks this is the next phase of evolution. I am the next thing. I will be the next creator. And just as Wayland thinks he has made perfection with David, he will make perfection in his own creation. And if you follow the logic of Ash, uh, when you meet it later on, you know, Ash says a perfect organism. So David would have applauded that had he heard it, I'm sure. Uh, but I, I like David's journey enough that I would even be willing to see, uh, though we'll probably never get to, I'd like to see a third part of the series just to complete David's story. Uh, but I, I find his exploration of both himself and others uh, to be just eminently fascinating. I I really can't get enough of this character, even though I know you've like you've stated that you hate MDT. Like I am so Your drawn. Into, I am I am as I am as drawn into this character as I am by the uh, strangely uh, mythical, almost boogeyman-ish. Uh, figure of the alien itself uh, how it's it's got its own sort of weird lore and, and complexity and I'm sucked into David because there's something I can't relate to um, you know other than like just the most basic insectile premise that we have on earth like it's, it's such an interesting creature with so many interesting things going on but David is something I can relate to because he at least has been giving human motivations but without any of the humanity per se and so, in his own way, uh, David has kind of become pure secularism, that pure science, 
that even when he appears to be helping you and you're he's on your side and he's your friend as we'll find out in the next film and all that uh it's really still about david in his own way but an oddly not a narcissistic way as much as it's like let's see what happens next sort of thing even though he is also narcissistic in his own way okay see i'm gonna throw it to nemesis but see you've described in a roundabout way the core of my rejection of this character and that is that the aliens as a concept are grander than this thing hmm. this type of origin makes them small now i there get was, that there was way more to them and way more that could have been done even on a metaphysical level if you want to go there than this now if you want to discuss this later and because this is something i can get onto a little bit i do know the extended lore behind the aliens as far as this film series goes with prometheus mm -hmm. and covenant mm -hmm. but you know that's up to you if you want to go there and if you just want to talk about it after the podcast let me know okay go ahead well, to your point that you just brought up, I will say that we're almost 90 minutes in this podcast. And how much time have we devoted to talking about aliens or the xenomorph? Zero. <laughs> right. Which okay. basically sums up, you know, the problem with this movie as yep. far as it being an alien movie. Um, as far as the cast, you you guys are going to be really interested to hear what I have to say. I, I think that there are different... Uh, broad categories in this. Um, I think there are, are are characters that Scott created to tell the story he really wanted to tell. And I think those are the most interesting characters, and I'll get into those in some more detail. Yep. There are characters that he created to make this shoehorn it into being a horror slash alien movie. <laughs> and those characters are ridiculous. There are some side characters. I'll cover them in a little bit. And then but um, the first characters I'm going to go to are the absolute red shirts, which are the the, the, <laughs> ex the extended crew of the ship. Uh, we don't meet them. They get wiped out in various different ways. The only thing that's interesting about them, and I don't understand why Hollywood keeps doing this, because it's my experience that this is so far from reality, is that every time they keep having security people on these ships who are bringing guns to these exploratory missions to go with the scientists and the scientists always turn to them and look at them haughtily and go this is a scientific mission i don't want anybody with a gun with you now any scientist <laughs> i know that's going out into the uncharted territory wants somebody with a gun who's good at killing stuff if <laughs> stuff goes south you I know i'll add one one thing that i think is stupid as well this is they, they put no weapons whatsoever aboard the Prometheus. And then what ends up happening when something actually requires uh, something to be shot, they got nothing. I mean, yeah. you would think that Whalen would have been smarter than that. Yeah. But I just don't understand why Hollywood keeps going back to this trope where scientists don't want some sort of, it doesn't have to be military. It could even be like a, the hippie dude that's good at martial arts and good at weapons and stuff. Somebody to turn to when things go bad. You always have that guy or that girl. It doesn't have, you know, whoever it is, you always have that person on an expedition because you never know when the time for talking ends and the time for action begins, you know? Yeah. So I, I just don't understand it. So that's all I have to say about those guys and those guys died. And that was their whole point. You know, we don't sure. remember them. They're there to get killed or, or turned into 
weird looking, you know, exorcist monsters that are walking backwards and doing their thing, you know, all those things. Um, the next is the horror movie character. Well, let me get to them in a second. The next is the side characters that were like fast food. They were satisfying, but not nothing good came of them. You know, those were the, the bridge crew. So we had Idris Elba and the two dudes that were wagering on everything. Those guys were interesting. Oh. You know, yeah, those two, those, those two dudes were funny. I found them engaging when they were on screen. I, I liked their dialogue, their witty back and forth and their banter. I liked Idris Elba's character. He was cool. I loved him sitting there. You know, when Vickers walks off, he says, can't be with the one you love and love the one you're with. Da, 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 da. I was like, <laughs> son, you got some moves there. You know, I was like, I, so I was like, you know, I, I, I connected with those characters. But like I said, they're fast food. They're just there for me to be like, oh, oh you know, I'm having a good time with them. But they gave me nothing for the story, you know. So no matter how much I enjoyed them and then and then they sacrifice them so i mean they do the cool play where they drive the ship in and blow up the other ship so i'm like okay you know and and i could see them doing that but it's like for the story it worked but it's like if i really wanted to get into it and be nitpicky i'm like did these three guys ever show that much devotion to protecting humanity or anything did they, did they earn it probably not they're just fast food they did something cool and gave us a cool effect so okay whatever then you got your two horror movie characters, which are Feifeld and Milburn. Mm -hmm. Those two are just Feifeld is the annoying guy that you want to die just because he's annoying. He's the annoying Scotsman. He's got a damn mohawk. You know, he he might as well have been the the janitor from The Simpsons in space. That's what he was. <laughs> you know, and um, Willie. And, and, and I do and I do say that that he was good at his job, and he made since he you know as far as like look you people may be looking at you know all the cool stuff on the ground but i'm looking at the murals and the weird worms coming out. i'm out of here you know it's like that he was the voice of common sense there and then he proceeds to get lost you know so he invented this technology why does he not have a heads-up display which we have for the military now you know because it's in the ship we saw the holographic display in the ship Idris Elba's looking at it you know Janik. So why doesn't he have that readout? You know, him getting lost makes no sense. But what really is unforgivable is then he's already bugged out of that temple room once because he was like, you know, I want no part of this. This is just no. And then they're near a bunch of corpses that are dead. Okay. Now I get that the corpses are going to freak you out, but from anybody, why would he leave that to go back to what is living and creepy. You know, that's horror movie <laughs> logic right there. Makes no sense. That said, he is about 300 IQ points ahead of Milburn. Milburn <laughs> is a moron. That dude deserved everything that came to him. I mean, as far as horror movie go, characters go, you know, horror movie IQ with, you know, your typical co-ed in a Friday the 13th movie being like a on a zero to 100, she's like maybe a 75. We'll give her a horror movie IQ. I mean, mm. that's high, but I have to give her that high because Milburn is at like a two. You are on an alien planet and all this stuff is going on and you reach out to touch the thing. It reminded me, the perfect thing it reminded me of is the skit from Bill Burr where Bill Burr is talking about people that get bit by snakes. 
And he, and he said, my first question is always like, what did you do? Were you asking <laughs> with it? Were you poking it? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on here. Fifefell should have been like, when he got bit, the thing was wrapped around him. Fifefell should not have helped that dude. You should be like, well, what did you do? Were you effing with it? Were you poking it? <laughs> you know, it's like, get yourself out of it, man. So, you know, that's my real problem with those two, and they're ridiculous. So that, that brings us then, um, oh, just one other character. Waylon, uh, I think Waylon is absolutely pointless after the fact, after they leave Earth. I don't understand why they brought him along. I don't, in the storyline, um, it makes no sense to me. It was never going to end well. Um, and then to have this frail old man up there getting in this giant's face. I mean, somebody should have been like, uh, Mr. Whalen, can you scale it back a little bit? Because this man is going to go Andre the Giant on you in a second and and just crush you, you know, which is what happened. I mean, so the whole the whole concept was ridiculous. The, the fact that they put him in there, the fact that they brought him out there to confront the the, the creators, it's like, just what are you doing? I, I didn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me. Um, yeah, I just didn't get it. I, I didn't like that storyline at all. Um, so, you know, if anything, I could see Waylon going into suspended animation, maybe at, on Earth, and then trying to find some cure and bring it back to him or something. But to him to go out there and just start throwing shade at an engineer just seemed ridiculous. Just absolutely ridiculous. So then there are the characters that I think Ridley Scott created to tell the story he wanted to tell. Um, so let's start with Holloway. Um, Holloway is, like Jeff said, he's the secularist. He's the non-believer. Uh, he is a thoroughly unlikable character, which I think is interesting from if you look at, look at it as this being a reflection of Ridley Scott's mind, mm -hmm. because um, I think that says something. Uh, he deserves everything that comes to him. That said, I find it interesting that they broke their own movie logic here, or they created new logic. Because I, one of the real problems I have, like we were talking about with the technology with Feifeld, how in the world does this black stuff work? Why didn't they ever look at this black stuff under a microscope or whatever? And how does the black stuff change his DNA and his semen in order to make it so that she can have a baby and the baby that comes out is going to be a great old one? You know, so what what is going on there? What you know, that is that's a that's a stretch. I mean, we're going from face hugger to now face hugger semen. Is that what we're talking about? I mean, what what is this going on? You know, that is that's just some weird stuff. I don't understand it. And then that same thing that he he drank or ate kills him later when you know, so the black stuff is a MacGuffin that is just used for everything. And I don't think it, it is explained enough. And that is unforgivable in a movie where hard science, you know, science fiction is really the theme. Um, then Shaw, uh, I think we've talked about Shaw a lot. Uh, I agree with what everybody said that she's making, you know, a journey. She represents the, the believer. Uh, she has her different quotes uh, to go with that. Um, so I'm just going to kind of skip over her. The same thing with Vickers. I think Vickers is a reflection of a young Wayland. She's ultra pragmatic, uh, take charge. Um, she is the most sensible of all of them, but she's also 
the person who has the least empathy for other people other than herself. So even, while she has the most common sense and the most uh, survival instinct and makes the best decision, she also has the least contact or connection with humanity. So then that brings me to David. And David, I love as a character. I think he's fascinating because I think that this is Ridley Scott's final argument is this character. And I think that's fascinating that he came to the final argument because what Ridley Scott is doing, there's a scene that was cut out of uh, a deleted scene that was cut out where it shows that Waylon has total control over David and that um, at one point he's ordering David to play a piece of music and he does it perfectly first time. And one of the problems I have from a story perspective with David is that David is is too good at everything. It's like he's learning ancient languages and then suddenly knows how to speak the engineer's language and knows how to do their passwords and everything. You know, like, you know, it's like the black stuff. It's a little too convenient and he's too good. He's, he's a Mary, uh, whatever the Android version of the Mary Sue is. You know? Gary Stu. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I think Ridley Scott is saying with David is, and I think it's fascinating is that Everything David does up until the point Waylon dies is because he's following the dictates of his creator. Everything that he does, so in a roundabout sort of way, Ridley Scott is telling us this is humanity following their creator, God. You may not agree with it. It may not always be pretty. He does some things that are good. He does save some people and do some other things. He does things that are bad, whatever. But when he is freed from the dictates of creator and now he becomes the creator himself. So Ridley Scott is talking about when man, if man ever throws off God, religion, and becomes God in his own eyes, look at what David becomes. Hmm. And can you argue that it's better or worse? Especially when there's nothing to tie David to. He is not been invested with any sense of divine spark morality whatever you want to call it conscience and this is where i have a real problem with the the next movie and the little bit i've seen of it because i thought it was fascinating that of all the people who survive it's shaw and shaw has some sort of hold over david you could almost call it a con she's got a con the conscience of david and i thought it would be fascinating as my cat tries to knock over everything here that if we got a second movie where you had David in a dominant position, but he's struggling with the humanity that he does not possess in the person of Shaw, and you've got this real struggle for what direction does this character go when he's faced with a person that he could snuff out at any time, he is superior to, except in probably the one way that matters the most to him, which is in humanity. Because when it comes to humanity, David is clearly inferior to everyone, including Feifeld and Milburn, and most definitely Shaw. So I think that's a fascinating concept. It could have been so interesting to explore mm -hmm. and threw it away before the second movie even started. So. All right. Well, that's a good transition into where we're going next uh, because we could go along on this film. But we do have to talk about that. I'm going to address some of that stuff, and then we're going to go through this final little thing. Uh, talking about the black goo, it's very reminiscent of the red matter in Abrams' track. 
Mm. Where it's something that just does what you needed to do based on the plot. Because the red matter was black hole creating, it was time warping, it was a whole bunch of things that was never explained. And I'm gonna we're gonna get into that in a minute when we talk about the evolution of the alien in this film. But uh, some of the stuff you said, uh, uh, some of the issue is not the right word. Some of the barriers I have to exploring the philosophical regions of the film is because it's always Hollywood religion. It's Hollywood's idea of what a believer is. Yeah. And I, I have been around believers of many kinds of faith. And I've been around people that believe like I believe from all over the world. So it's a very narrow kind of Hollywood defined faith person, if you will. I, I would go farther than that. And my critique would be, especially since I live out here, is you cannot write what you don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay. So so then there's that. And then uh, not, uh, Bracey, that I didn't understand what you were saying about the fight or flight response, because that's legit. It's just that coming off of a movie like Aliens, if you remember, Hicks always had the right response. Mm-hmm. Whenever Hicks, whenever there was danger, he always responded. His training took over. Every time, he always made the right decision. When someone was dead, he knew to leave them. He didn't mourn. He didn't grieve. He forget him. He's gone. He always made the right decision in the heat of the moment. And Ripley, when faced with the biggest challenge of her life after finding out she's 57 years displaced, got angry, got confident, got some weapons, said, I'm going to go get my new daughter back or die trying, but she was smart about it. So I think it can go both ways. And I think you have to have both in a film. And this film was everybody reacting with the worst possible reaction with, when the adrenaline kicked in, especially when you provoke the situation yourself. And like I said, that is what, because, uh, and what Nemesis just said, and we'll get into this with the next film, but David is also a trying to have it both ways kind of character. Mm-hmm. Now, the time that they sold me, see, they sold me on Spock, they sold me on Seven of Nine, and they sold me on Data. They sold me on Spock because Spock finally realized he needed to stop fighting the fact that he was part human. He'd done everything he could to try to beef all logic, but that's not actually who he was, who he was because his mother was human. Data's best episode for me was not Measure the Man. It was the one with the exocomps. When he realized he had found an artificial life form that might be alive and was willing to give his life because he said, I'm alone in the universe and I finally found a race of beings that are more like me. Even though I'm stylized like a human, I'm more like that. They sold me on that. They sold me on Seven of Nine because Seven was the opposite of the other two characters. She was a human that became something else and had to wonder, do I really want to be human again? All that's fascinating. But with David... They're trying to have it both ways. You're both amoral and evil. You're both logical and dispassionate, but then sadistic. You're both, you know, programmed to be a certain thing, but the kinds of things you would have to do to inflict some of the torments that you did. It, can, can, it's, it's a. Can I push back on that for a second? Dave? Sure, sure, go ahead. I, I'm just curious what you you think of this. We describe David as evil, and I think what Jeff said has a lot of merit in that I would describe him as evil as a villain, 
But is he evil? Because how do I say this? Like a lot of people will say, they'll look at a, a Godzilla movie and say, oh, Godzilla is evil. Godzilla is not evil. He's just doing what he's doing. He just he's misunderstood. A, he's, he's amoral, you know. Galactus is not evil. Aliens are not evil. They're just yeah. trying to survive. I, I would say that if I was David, well, I am David, but if I was that David on here talking, I would say I would have a perfectly rational explanation for everything I'm doing. And I would coach, mm -hmm. couch everything I'm doing in some sort of explanation. And to us hearing it as people who are being affected by his decisions or have a grown up in a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong, we would say that's evil. To him, he would say, I don't care. You're just, you know? you're, just <laughs> rats. You're, you're chimpanzees mm -hmm. at the zoo. Why do I care? Yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, we're just mm -hmm. a mean mm -hmm. in. He's just yeah. what okay, he's okay. but, 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 but. I don't think he has a genuine concept of good and evil. Which, which is you why you have to have some level of a soul to be cruel. That's but, what I'm trying to say. If you're uh, all logic and you're all dispassionate, what you would be is efficient. I mean, we do, cruel. we do cool things to animals in the name of research and even ridiculous things like testing cosmetics on animals. Uh, but, but then again, but, if you don't test cosmetics on animals, somebody a human gets a rash or has a violent reaction. So, but there's people that push back against that, and and they go to another extreme. That's a whole other conversation. A necessary sacrifice is probably I how mean, he would have put we, it. We we've joked about. I mean, we have joked about you know Lovecraft and and the great old ones. I can't never remember off the top of my head what the real name for them is called. But and it, yeah, but in some sense, he's hitting on this idea that for greater beings, for beings that are outside of humanity. We are inconsequential. You know, there are things that we don't care about. When we walk down the street, we may be stepping on hundreds of ants that we never know and killing them as we go along. We don't care. I, I, and I think that, you know, this goes into my argument. What I say is that once David was untethered from his creator and becomes the God in his own eyes, he's, he's elevated himself. And I think that is in some way, I mean, this is putting a lot on this movie, which is very flawed. But that's a warning to us. I think this is one of the things I like about this movie. It's a warning to us because you look at what we're doing now. We look at we're creating human chimp hybrids. You look at the stuff we're messing with. We are playing God and we're untethering ourselves from a morality that has done bad things in the past. I mean, in the name of religion, there have been horrible things done. But some of the things we're doing now, now that we've separated ourselves from religion, are absolutely horrifying. You know, so I think that there is an, an actual cautionary tale there. There's a lot to be said from it. Unfortunately, it's all contained in this rather flawed movie. So. <laughs> well, I, I think what you're saying has some merit. It's just, once again, what I can't get past is tethering it to the aliens and tethering it to he being their origin, because that's another stretch for me in terms of an intelligent level of development and in terms of the biological sciences necessary, it's almost like a doomsday origin because doomsday's origin doesn't make any sense. We just kept killing something and letting it grow back. And now we can't kill it the same way twice. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a stretch. And so it's a bit of a stretch for me, for him to have everything he would need to have inside of an artificial soul to get to that. But we can talk about that some more with the next movie because the next movie is basically about that. Mm. Yeah. So we'll, we'll do a deep dive into that. But to finish this up, 
let's talk about the actual evolution of the little bit of alien lore we did see in this film from the discovering of the goo to the planting of the goo to the everybody's in trouble so we're all going to go have sex time and then oops i'm sorry i got her pregnant with baby shumagora <laughs> and, so, and then she's got to perform a c-section which I, is another thing that uh okay do me out the film and then she recovers too quickly and then uh she's doing you know batman level stuff 15 minutes later no you wouldn't and then and then so schumann gets in in a depressurized room with maybe little baby alien in the last shot of the movie is baby alien just deciding to grow a protruded jaw and this kind of thing and so i again 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 if i could sum up my resistance to the concepts is because it makes them small makes them small as creatures makes them small as concepts makes them a tenth of what they could have been as a species with the planet with a full environment that harbored something like that with other things that might be equally as terrible as they were with different variations on the theme with maybe one king that seeded all of this. There's just so many better places the books went until I cannot swallow this. Even though I think your arguments are valid, I can't squeeze what I've already read and what I've already imagined myself and what I've already seen how the Lord goes so many different ways to believe for half a second that a narcissistic android made y'all. Well, this whole this whole alien portion is where I, I'll really rant. So just okay. get ready. <laughs> and so, so as I'm looking at the evolution, I agree with what Nemesis said before about, because it's another example of trying to have it both ways. And that is that it's one thing to have hard science fiction. It's another thing when you're rooting your science fiction and real world concepts, and then you're taking a leap that we haven't made yet, but a leap that might be possible. And then it's another thing altogether to throw in comic book magic in that same film. See, Steve is laughing, he knows where I'm going because you can't have all of them in the same film and expect me to buy any of them. You have to pick a lane. And so if we're going to get the Spider-Man movie magic, because I'm like, you know, because we were just talking about it today about how we've become so pedantic and so detail-oriented in our examining of lore until sometimes we can strip all the fun out of it and just, you know, it's just make-believe. But if you're going to show me that a spider bite from a super spider can rewrite the DNA of a human, combining it with the best parts of the spider, so you don't come out with a multi-eye thing and, and the multi-leg thing and the spinnerets in your butt instead of your wrist and all the things that would happen if you actually became a human spider, it would be like the fly. The fly was a better example of how through teleportation and disassembling of atoms and molecules, it recombined the best thing it knew how. That makes sense given, given a science fiction, fiction context. But Peter Parker's origin doesn't make any sense rewritten DNA and then rewritten DNA to let you still retain 
all of these human everything, and you just get cool powers. Like spider sense. Spider sense comes from hairs on a spider and then feeling the, the wind motion before you get over there. Flies do it too. That's actually spider sense. So you actually feel the danger coming on the wind currents. That's how they react. Peter's spider sense is actually sensing danger and almost a clairvoyant, preternatural kind of way. That's not actually spider sense, but we don't care because it's comic book magic. You can't put that in this along with all the other insults is another insult to injury to say that somehow, again, with the black goo that is totally undefined and totally morphs into whatever you need it to be can create little Schumer in, in the womb. <laughs> what? And then the other thing that we've talked about a million times in this franchise and that is that the, the one part I did like was that she gets on the medical bed to find out what's wrong. The part that I didn't like was, once again, you should have had atmospheric filters in the ship. If there are substances that don't belong, there should be all kind of warning bells going off, all kind of alarms going off. And then the rapid development of a fetus because for the longest, before the 90s, they said that Superman and Lois couldn't have kids because the baby would kill Lois in the womb with one super kick, which kind of made sense because Kryptonians are humanoid, but under a yellow sun, their biology changes. So on Superman and Lois, they had Superman go to Candor under a red sun, then she carried the baby there so the baby wouldn't have powers. I, that's comic book science. I buy it because that makes sense. But you can't you can't get this undefined goo and then this rapid gestation and then the Schumer baby and then she cuts it out and oh no there's a little octopus and then five minutes later and then mm -mm, mm -mm. and the last scene is is a pre xenomorph a pre a pre thing whatever and I'm like so if it hadn't lost me all the way through all the other stuff that was the final nail. I'm like, no, 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 this doesn't have anything to do with the aliens that we've already met. You've shown us something that is so many rungs down on the evolutionary scale, what we already know, that's movie making 101. That's why it's hard to write sequels. Because once you establish a force, the first time you see it, it's awesome. The second time you have to turn up the stakes or it's just a retread. That's why sequels are so hard to write. But this was the other direction. This was a baby xenomorph that wasn't like anything we had seen that wasn't nearly as terrifying as things we've already seen. So I, so I, so anyway, I was done from the first scene, but I guess I was extra done with barbecue sauce. But, but it's only got to this one. You extra crispy by then, so. I was full extra crispy, dipped <laughs> with honey and butter, and maybe a little bites. rice and beans on the side. Okay, so let's talk about the evolution of the alien in this film, the evolution of the xenomorph, uh, and everything, the goo, the impregnation, baby Shuma, everything. Uh, start with Bracey. All right. Um, first of all, let's. I think we can all agree that after the C-section, Shaw just has nothing but plot armor. <laughs> yes. Because yeah, yes, that, that did get ridiculous. You, you'd see her just reacting to being hurt 
every now and again. Oh yeah, belly wound. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Um, your 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 space uh, technology is clearly not that good. Uh, what I found interesting about the uh, the creature that gets impregnated into her, uh, they call it uh, when it's fully developed into the giant squid facehugger monster. They call it the trilobite. I thought something kind of interesting when it, when she pulled it out that it wasn't a fetus, uh, it wasn't uh, a xenomorph, it wasn't anything was seen. I actually thought it looked like some sort of mutated sperm. Now it has a whole bunch of extra flagella instead of just the one as a usual sperm. I but didn't I need to the, hear that. <laughs> I really didn't need to hear that. Like David, I'm going pure science. Uh, oh no! So I actually I actually found that concept pretty interesting, and then seeing what it turned into on its own because I felt like this only took like the the barest of our DNA, and uh, and that was kind of an interesting idea to me. And then the the fact that it processed through a female, and then later on we see once again it has like the vagina face and then it's got the inserting thing. So then there's that hermaphroditic mixing that Giger had with his original designs. When you come to the face hugger, it looks very much like a vagina on the bottom and it's got the intrusive organ uh, that implants the seed in you. So I was kind of okay with the troll bite uh, because like you said, DT, we should have some established rules. Uh, the goo gets on these little mealworm looking creatures and it turns into something you can extrapolate from that. A long, sinuous creature. Okay? We've got a, a, a little sinuous creature. We turn into a long, sinuous creature. Uh, once again, we have to go to, unfortunately, deleted scenes that didn't make it in there. I know uh, Redley, bless his heart, he, he really loves practical effects, and I applaud him for that. But there are times when CGI is the best thing for the job. So when um, Fifield attacks the ship in his mutated form, they did a whole sequence, totally rendered, uh, maybe not a final pass, but I've, I've watched it, you can watch it on YouTube, where the uh, his uh, impact with the, the black goo, which eats through his helmet, uh, starts a process which, if you look at his mutated form, he's about seven feet tall, he's elongated. He and his spacesuit are becoming one, so the idea here is like he's starting to have an elongated head, uh, the dome is turning into like a xenomorph, he's turning into a xenomorph. Another interesting idea that didn't get played out in the movie. Okay, it's like, oh, so this this highly mutative stuff that apparently can affect organic and inorganic matter hits him and starts to create a new life form out of what it's working with. It's like you said, I can buy into that idea. But they didn't go there. They went a different way with it. So he's just mutating inside of a suit in the final product of the film. But it's like you said, the problem is the goo does whatever you need it to do at the time. So once again, because we don't have the original scenes or like we don't have uh, excerpts of the script that I've read, I'm having to do the work once again, and which I should not be doing. Uh, if if the goo can do anything, then what is the goo? Uh, we have no idea what the goo is. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a perspective outside uh, from somebody who's studied all this stuff outside of the film, and I'm sure you guys will take over for what we actually saw on the screen. So we have seen the Deacon. Uh, that's what they call the, the thing that burst out of the, uh, the engineer, the, the, the proto alien looking thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we did see it in the film before it actually arrives. There is a mural on the wall 
of the engineers basically kind of worshiping this figure in this kind of Christ pose. And you, you saw the elongated spiky head that represents a creature that is similar to this or maybe a progenitor to this. Uh, imagine coming from the engineers, it probably did come from them in some way. And I, that does bring me one more pet peeve. Uh, the space jockey was like at least 12, maybe 18 feet tall in an in alien. Why the hell were they just scaled down to like eight feet tall in this movie? Where's the consistency in that? If you're not going to make him like the, the trunk thing, you know, and he's just got like a biomechanical uh, suits and things, why isn't he like 18 feet tall? We certainly have the technology to do that, whether it's through force, force perspective or compositing. That bugged the crap out of me. Uh, and Ridley Scott's better than that. I don't know why he made that decision. Uh, but on back onto this thing. Uh, so the the exterior lore, which for whatever reason we're not privy to because we just don't get all the facts here, is the engineers found this creature that they considered to be, uh, in a lot of ways, perfect. It's not something they made. It's something they found. And the black goo is actually supposed to be the uh, a blood or process from this creature. And so they found out it had these uh, fabulous mutagenic properties. And as they're uh, processing their, they're processing their own evolution. They're, they're not into like just evolving. They're processing their own evolution, which is why they work with this creature while they're uh, refining the black goo, stretching its properties to the nth degree. Uh, the fact that they had gotten to a place where they were beyond reproduction to where now they needed the black goo to reproduce in a wholly new fashion by seeding planets with life. And, uh, and it's, it's such a disservice that we didn't hear the conversation between David and the engineer, uh, that it wasn't subtitled because there was some interesting stuff in there about that. And now once again, thinking about like the, uh, deleted scene that you spoke of a while ago, about how like David, uh, didn't have any control as far as Wayland was alive. Um, David actually does not word for word say to the engineer what Wayland's telling him to say. He's goading the engineer into killing Wayland so that he can be free. Not expecting his head to get ripped off, I'm sure. But uh, another weird part of this process is it's, it says in these scripts the, uh, the engineers live for hundreds of thousands of years. And oddly, a really odd facet of the script is that speaking does them damage. I don't know if maybe they took the idea from Earth Hive. They were supposed to be telepathic. Uh, but it says, like, one of the reasons it's getting so upset is not just Wayland's arrogance, but the fact that I'm having to explain this to you. You're too stupid to understand that I'm so much better than you. It's costing me life. I'm, like, losing a hundred years a word uh, speaking this to you. So, like, this film got really kind of weirdly metaphysical in a lot of ways. It started going kind of dune territory, but we're not privy to any of that because the movie wasn't structured to give us that sort of thing. So the idea is that this creature did exist that was more or less perfect. And then what the engineers did with it was they made all these things from it, but eventually even that wasn't enough for them. It ended up wiping it out in some way. But then I, it kind of speaks to what happens, and we'll get into this later with David in the second film, is David tries to create perfection, but it already kind of exists. So for all of David's uh, godlike prowess, this is what's kind of missing from the having the spark of the soul or the spark of the divine. It's like when you think about like God and Lucifer, 
that God is the creator. He is the maker of all things. But what does the devil always do? The devil can only copy. And that's what David is. For all of his supposed superiority, for all of his grandeur in himself, for all of his intellectual prowess and, and need to, uh, to be the most high, to be the one who's in charge, to be the one to create, he can't actually create. When he makes the aliens, he's just making a new version of something that existed. The base model is already there. The base model was already more or less perfect. He's just creating his idea of perfection. Well, you know, Bracey, as usual, you describe a better movie than the one we got. And and it, it always it always resonates with me that you have put more thought and effort into it than they did, or they were so focused on the broad strokes mm -hmm. that they bungled the execution. Because you're always really, really good at connecting the dots, but the movie, like you always say, is supposed to connect the dots. Yep. Because you're always describing a better film than what we saw. And many times, uh, I won't say giving them too much credit, but that's what it feels like sometimes. <laughs> it feels, you know, because what you know feels like that maybe they didn't they didn't even go there themselves because the larger metaphysical themes of the alien could have really been another deep film. It could have been grand like you wanted. Right. But if you're going to continue to have them be uh, just snarling beasts who are only concerned with reproduction and eating, and you don't make them <laughs> have a larger motivation or evolutionary scale or perspective, or it was never a part of what they were, and then maybe they were altered, and then maybe that's why they became aggressive, or maybe that's why they hate humanoid forms, and maybe maybe a whole lot of maybes because of what the engineers did to them, like you described. That's a better film. That's a war, hmm. like the MVP films. That's something where something happened, and now you have two forces with an antagonistic past, which can explain what we've already seen before. But when you have to do all that work to try to fill in gaps, that are large enough to drive South Dakota through. I mean, that's that's an excellent point. It's like uh, it's like when we tried to make a better bee and we ended up with killer bees because we mucked about with something that we shouldn't have. Right, right. Okay, uh, go ahead, Nemesis, a, uh, Evolution of the Alien, and let the rants fly. All right, I'm going to say, first of all, uh, as just your average moviegoer, as far as the average moviegoer is concerned, as a person who I haven't read the extended material, I haven't read all the other stuff. I've watched movies. I've read a few things. But that's the extent. When I go into Prometheus, and you're telling me this is an alien movie, I've got four alien movies beforehand, and that's my <laughs> backstory. If you were going anywhere outside of that, you better connect it in some way, and you better show me. Otherwise, as my wife says all the time, we start waving the BS flag, you know? <laughs> and that's what this whole alien thing is, to me, is the giant BS flag going the whole time. It's like the same thing when she had the, the abdomen cut open and then she was doing all this stuff. My wife has watched this movie with me. And she, she saw her running around with her little C-section. She, she was waving that flag. She's like, mm -hmm, <laughs> that bold. <laughs> so, yeah, it just makes no sense to me. And, and I hear what Jeff is saying. 
But it's like, golly, you know, if you're going to bring all of that exposition in, you needed to make one or two movies before you made this movie, you yeah. know, or, or right. you, needed to, you needed to hand somebody a, a novel to read and say, you need to read this before you can come in and watch my movie, you know, something like that. Because to me, as the average moviegoer, and this is why I'm ranting, none of this made any sense. None of it. You know, the black goo is sitting there, and then I, I didn't even realize that it hit that it hit worms down there. I thought the worms were coming out of the canisters. That's what it looked like to me. So, you know, all of a sudden, then I get the, the snake come out, and I'm like, okay, it turned into a snake. Well, how did that happen? And then we had... <laughs> black goose sperm and i'm like well how did that happen you know it's like what 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 is going on here what is this stuff doing and then david's got it on a finger but it doesn't do anything to him i guess because he's artificial yeah. you know but it's like they never look at it they never you know did you poke it were you messing with it you know it's like what what did you do <laughs> and and then and then Fifield shows up and to me he didn't look like anything what you described i thought it was a, a Sasquatch walking in. I thought it was Bigfoot. So I was like, what the hell is Bigfoot doing in this movie? I and seriously, I was looking at it going, are they just bringing in random monsters now and just throwing it in there? I was like, I was like, come on guys, you don't need to work that hard for your horror movie chops. You already have horror characters. Just bring Xenomorphs in. But now hey, I got check that. that uh, check out that alternate footage of Five Fields Attack. Okay. But, but when I'm watching the movie, this is what I'm seeing. So I'm seeing... Yeah. You know, I'm seeing Sasquatch. I'm seeing some weird thing walking. I'm seeing a weird-looking snake. I've got goose sperm creating, a, <laughs> you know, a shaggy board, and this woman's thing, and coming out with the octopus. And then, to add insult to injury, then I got to watch the the evil, you know, in my mind, evil engineer get face-raped by the giant, you know, now I can never unhear it again, sperm monster. You know, the sperm, the sperm old one attacking him. Then this thing rips out of him. And now I'm finally like, oh, look, it's an alien. Maybe we're getting somewhere. I don't understand any of anything that came out. It makes no sense to me. It makes no con it makes no sense to me in the context of the four movies that came before it, whether I liked them or not. Some I did, some I didn't. But I'm like, now I've got an alien thing. Something's gonna happen. This alien is gonna evolve. And then the next movie comes along and says, Nope. We never went back there. Who knows what happened with that alien thing on that planet? We did something else over here. I'm like, F all you. I'm poking it. Screw <laughs> you know, all of you. It's like, you just lost me. All your alien chops lost. You know, so it's like, I love this movie from a science fiction standpoint. I like a lot of what they're doing, the themes. It's beautiful to look at what you're saying, but it's an alien movie. I'm like, cut it. Nuke it from orbit, burn it three times, stomp on it, throw it in the trash compactor, and then flush it down to hell with Jason and Freddie and let them fight over it because that is where it belongs, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Ran oh, over. My goodness. <laughs> that was See, epic. Yeah, yeah, it was. And and I'm agreeing with all you're saying. I like the way you started that by saying, what about those that have just watched the films? And what about those that have bought into this? This has been billed as an alien film. And and then you cannot be confused when this movie fails at the box office. Yeah, I mean, that's precisely why it failed. Everybody was expecting an alien film. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. See, now this is, 
Um, we're going to throw it to Steve in a minute, but we're going to touch on this since y'all brought it up. This is another one of my fundamental pet peeves. If you want to see me rant on Twitter, this is the thing to bring up. And here it is. And, and I guess it's because, I, you know, I, I don't know, I guess because maybe I'm more of a straightforward person, but <clears throat> I'm the you can't pee on my leg and make me say it's rain guy. <laughs> so the only reason you use established IPs is because you're trying to take the popularity and the momentum that's already been built to draw eyes in on your story. That is Smallville in a nutshell. And they kept saying, it's not about Superman. It's not about Superman. It's not about Superman. Yes, it is. It's absolutely about Superman and every element of his world was brought in, except the ones we wanted to see. And the only reason we watched the show was because it was a Superman show. So you can't keep saying not about Superman because that's not true. If it had been about Booster Gold, or if it had been about the Creeper, or if it had been about the Metal Man, that's not a Superman show. But Smallville, Kansas and Clark and Lana and Lois and the Kents and Pete and two Jimmys and Lex Luthor and Lionel Luthor, that's Superman show. I hate to break it to you. So that's what this movie did to us. If you don't know the lore or the extended content, this movie said, here's an alien film of which we get 45 seconds of a prototype alien that's come down the pipe with the, with the, with the caviar. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I have to say this is a, a movie that is the series of implausible events <laughs> because none of this stuff connects in any logical way. I I, I will say I, I kind of respect uh, Jeff for trying to make this work, and you know he's always very good at finding you know plausible ways of taking this absolute nonsense and finding a way to make it work. And you know I'm not going to take anything. Hollywood, that I can fix your scripts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, you can. You are the okay. script doctor. But but going by what we have seen in this movie, without doing the work of the movie, my God, it just there's just some the whole thing is just ridiculous. There's no way that this sequence of events, as shown, would happen the way that it happened in this movie. So you 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 start with okay, there is a bunch of goo that they find in these bases. Um, in these things, are are you really telling me that the engineers had absolutely no uh, protocols for preventing outbreaks or from accidental prevention of, of this goo infecting things? Uh, we don't know why these things suddenly liquefy. I imagine the 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 engineers must have known that it does this. You know why don't why don't you have like something set up? Uh, you know in your cargo hold you know, to prevent these things from doing this and accidentally contaminating everything. Okay, so there, so this is like the first place where, where it completely screws up and it's completely implausible. Uh, you end up getting David uh, getting a hold of some of the goo, you know, and he gives it to Holloway. Um, what did he think that this was going to do? I'd have no idea. And, and then you end up getting uh, a situation where, okay, uh, once again, this is being a horror movie, you know, sex is terrible. And, and, and if you have sex, that bad things will happen to you. So we start having this 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 metaphor for an STD, apparently. <laughs> oh no! And, 
Star Trek Discovery. That's what it comes across as. And and so you end up getting this, and then you end up, you know, fathering baby Shumagorath meets Starro. And 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 this whole thing comes out. Starro. Uh, nothing, uh, she doesn't even notice any weird anything until after she gets back on the ship. Uh, you would think that if this thing had been gestating uh, three months worth that she would have noticed something in, in all that time. No, 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 no. She conveniently doesn't notice until she gets back. And, and then she tries to take the thing out of her, which uh, is completely ridiculous that the thing complains, oh, it's not com- com- calibrated for women. BS. Because this thing <laughs> should have been calibrated for Vickers. Because we saw it earlier, the same the same Metapod, in Vickers' uh, uh, module. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it should have been calibrated for her. So you would think that yes, it would have been calibrated for women, but no, it's it's not for some reason. Uh, that that is inexplicable. Okay, so we get this weird scene where she's having to do this this weird cesarean that ends up messing with her. And as has been pointed out, there is no way in the world, you know, that that Shaw would have been in the shape that she was in, doing half the stuff that she was in, only occasionally saying, "Oh yeah, I I, I cut myself in the, my midsection," you know, with trying to extract. Shumagor out of my out of my midsection. No, 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 no. And then on top of that, this thing conveniently has the properties of a face hugger. Oh, why is never explained. It just does. Um, and and I will also add the 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 thing that really gets me about the ending and how this thing really starts coming across is that I do not know why the engineer was in that module. There is no reason whatsoever. Why the, why the engineer would have been there. Uh, you know, they tried to say, oh, well, it was because he was mad that these little monkeys, you know, took down his ship. Well, you know, the, he should know that these monkeys are not going to survive <laughs> because they have no way off of the planet. Okay, <laughs> the, the Prometheus is destroyed. They, they, they have a limited amount of air and they're probably run, living on borrowed time. So the engineer would, would logically think, you know what, they, these guys are all gonna die. I'm going to concern myself with continuing my mission and getting off of this planet because as we find out later, uh, David finds out, oh yeah, there are other ships buried on this planet. Okay. So the engineer's logical answer would be, okay, forget the monkeys. They're going to die on their own. Uh, I'm going to go and find another ship. And then maybe then I'll end up destroying the remains of the monkeys with my new ship. And then I'm going to get off the planet and then I'm going to go back and do whatever it was that I was supposed to do. So there's no reason why the engineer would have been there to be face hugged, and that, uh, and 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 in addition to that, there is no biological process that makes sense to why you know this turns to this, turns into this, turns into a xenomorph. I mean, it just it, it it's absolutely a magical process based on this magic goo, which has no properties that are defined. We don't know how it works. It just does whatever it needs to do, you know, so that we can establish that yes, this is an alien prequel. It, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous from start to finish with a series of events that does not connect in any logical fashion and is based on the most contrived nonsense. There, There's no way that this works as an alien film in any way, shape, or form. Now, it may have started off with the idea of, okay, let's explore the space jockeys, you know, let's kind of do this prequel thing, but then evolved into this whole other story which at that point it should have been okay. Let's cut off all the alien stuff and then kind of work with what we actually are telling here. 
But no, we want to cash in on the Alien franchise. So no, we're going to keep this Force Fit stuff. And all of it is completely contrived. It is completely ridiculous. None of the stuff works on the level that the movie is trying to show us. And it's 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 it's, it's ridiculous. I absolutely you know what nonsense. They, you know what they should have done? You know, now that I'm thinking about what Jeff told us about all the original backstory and everything, the first sure. movie should have been way back, ancient times, engineers discovering this race and screwing with it and something going on and don't say anything. Don't say anything in promotion. If people figure out that the engineers are the space jockeys, that's cool. Yeah. Let them yeah. build up hype yeah. for it. And they do the second movie where stuff gets out of control. And then, you know, then through the third movie is Prometheus mm -hmm. leading into everything that goes on. Then you got some, you know, you had a trilogy right there. Yeah. And, and people, eventually the public would have figured out, whoa, wait a minute. This is tying into Aliens and Ridley Scott is doing it, you know, so... Yeah, there were there were so many ways to do this or a variation of this and tie it in aliens. Uh, you've always got to have humans, obviously, but you know, you just run across like a, a derelict uh, juggernaut ship out in space, and you know, you find some engineers on there. It's just so many ways to do it, or like you know, Earth Hive or what Dark Horse did, have them come to us. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't even know if you'd need to have humans. I, I would have watched the hell out of a movie where it's talking about an alien species is discovering these perfect uh, I'm, I'm creatures thinking, and screwing with them and everything. Well, see, this, thinking, is, this is what I'm talking about, Bill. Well, my, my thing is, I'm thinking in terms of how Hollywood often thinks they want... I mean, like, we get away with it with Avatar to an extent, uh, for instance, but we do have legitimate human characters as well. Uh, but more often than not, Hollywood does want to have identifiable human characters uh, for the audience to, you know, empathize with. That's that's just the way they think more often than not. Yeah, well, this is another fine example of the phrase you hear me use all the time, which is putting the camera in the wrong place. Yeah. Okay. Why is there blood corrosive acid? Why is it that level of strong acid? Because that would mean in a purely evolutionary sense you would have to come from a planet where that type of defense was necessary. You would also have to explain how, does it turn to acid when it hits the air? Does it function like actual blood? And then when it hits the air, it turns into something else? What type of gas combination? Because you know we have oxygen, yeah. nitrogen, whatever, and the surface of Jupiter is mostly methane or whatever. What mm -hmm. type of gaseous combination does it take you don't have eyes, you breathe because we can see and hear your breath because the queen breathes, but you can survive the vacuum of space. So that means whatever type of respiratory system you have is different from a human one, even though you burst out of us. So there are so many different ways that a home planet adventure to explain, or even if it didn't explain it fully, just a bit of a hint yeah. Like Empire did with Star Wars. We didn't understand everything about Vader, but we got little peaks. We saw the back of his head as the mask comes down. We saw extended use of the force choke, where we just saw a little bit in the first movie. We saw mastery of the lightsaber. We saw a whole bunch of things, and it was still quite a mystery. So that's what I mean when I say, just on a pure evolutionary basis, for that kind of creature to exist, what type of planet or environment would engender such a nightmare species. And even yeah. if you were, were created, it would have to be obviously for malevolent purposes. So what type of engineers 
who would purposely make a creature like that would do so because it is hinted as we keep talking about the next movie that the goo and the reproductive quick reproductive cycle was actually a weapon used like a bomb like an airstrike yeah which was kind of goofy but the point i'm trying to make is that the camera's in the wrong place i just think it's sad that out of this whole movie which had so much that i liked that was supposed to be an alien movie the part Mm -hmm. that felt alien to the movie it mm-hmm. felt like it didn't belong was all the aliens. Was the xenomorph. Yeah. And, exactly. and once again, it kind of shows that this sequence of events could never work because, as you say, how would um, the, the xenomorph have developed these kinds of abilities, you know, going from the goo uh, to human, uh, being human hosts, you know, to turning into Shumagorath, you know, to face-hugging the engineer? How does any of that process lead to a being that can spit ass that has acid blood um, and is the ultimate survivor the way that it's designed to be? It makes zero sense. And also in Alien 3, that's the only time we actually saw them eating people. It was hinted to and alluded to, but the dog alien was the only version of the thing that actually ate people repeatedly. So then are you naturally carnivores? Are you just aggressive to protect your species? Are you desirous of human flesh because you got mixed with canine DNA. Is that who you are all the time? The whole idea of the king, like in Reign of Fire, one male dragon, one male king, to see them all. Well, where did it come from? I've always and, liked, I'm sorry. I've always liked the idea much better that was possibly before Prometheus ever came out, that the, the ship was carrying all these eggs because, ironically... <laughs> The company always wanted to get the aliens as bioweapons is is that what they're that's what they were actually made for by the uh, the space jockeys is they were biological weapons right and that also once again if we go with the elephantine <coughs> uh, you know telepathy based race and uh so we have a completely different level of technology and science and worldview and religion and so maybe they made these things in response to something else maybe mm-hmm. they were a part of a galactic war and they said, we need to come up with a, a style of weapon that can re- get us, you know, revenge can retaliate against our enemies that won't cost us ships and lives. So we'll come up with something biological and organic or biomechanical that we can actually plant on their planet. And by the nature of the way they reproduce, the planet will be overrun in less than six months. And if the space jockeys were that, hell-bent on revenge, then what kind of war did you have? On and on and on and on. You see what I'm saying? But they put the camera in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. And then they tried to say they were using the bioweapons to destroy humanity, which is like, why would you need to do that? You know, don't you have the technology to do that? You know, just with the advanced technology that you currently possess, why would you need to do that with humans? So they definitely needed to be an outside alien race if you were going to do that. Bio bio warfare is an interesting concept to get into too. I mean, it is, it is. And, and that's uh, like one of the better Star Trek setups because the original series did it and the next generation did it. When you had two warring races that kept hitting an impasse, they couldn't outfight each other. They could not last each other. So Picard was like, well, why don't you try talking? Yeah. And they're like, they're like, we don't want to talk. But before the hour's over, they said, okay, well, well, maybe human. Okay. Well, maybe talking's a thing. So what kind of race would the elephantine space jockeys have been up against again to make them go to the level to create such a 
uh, a deviant and horrific and grotesque weapon that was a perfect organism that could survive in any environment. And uh, how many of their own did they lose to create such a species? Because you would have to have lost many of your own scientists in trying to get to, see, that's what I'm saying. All that is a grander scale than David decided we don't need to live. And by the way, here's Ant-Man with a big jaw. I, I do want to throw in one thing, because I know we got to wrap up in a second, but um, so we don't really have time to discuss it. But the, from a technical aspect, a filmmaking aspect, the other problem I have with this movie, um, and I'd love to hear you guys like quick thoughts on this, is that I, I think you got to keep the looks of the movies consistent. And this movie really suffered from prequel syndrome mm -hmm. in that uh, this movie takes place before the alien, the first movie. We've seen movies from Alien 1 through 4 out 300 years past this. Mm -hmm. And none of the technology looks anywhere near as good as this. The ships don't look anywhere as good as this. None of it works the same way. I mean, it's just not, it doesn't fit in the same universe. It just doesn't. It's like, I understand that the Nostromo is a cargo ship. Or not the Nostromo, the... Um... Yeah, it's Nostromo. Yeah, the Nostromo. But then uh, what was the name of the ship that the Marines were on? Um, Saluco. Yeah, the Saluco. All right. Now, okay. Sulaco. You, you can explain the, the, the Nostromo. But the Sulaco, you got Colonial Marines. They're going to have a state-of-the-art ship, state-of-the-art technology. And that ship, it looked better than the Nostromo. But compared to that ship that they went out and, and promote Prometheus, it was a dump. You know, so I was like, look, Prometheus is even better than the than the one from uh, Alien Resurrection, and that was yeah. like hundreds of years later. So, Sulaco is like a lot like any military vessel. It's it's made for functionality, not to right. be impressive. Right. Plus, also because like looking at Star Wars prequels versus Star Wars, you know, Star Trek, you know, prequels that they're doing versus Star Trek, like they. They always upgrade the technology because they think, oh, we've we've got all this cool stuff we can do with sets and lightings yeah. and, and digital like, effects. But you know, I think they underestimate the public. If you made a Star Trek series like what Discovery's supposed to be, mm -hmm. but it, it was like all like uh, candy colored, like the original series was, I think people would respond to that. Yeah, and even you, if it you, looks kind of silly you, by today's standards, you've got to respect what came before. And it's like, yeah, you yeah. can do some new stuff and and everything, but it's like. You're trying to mold it into a universe and you cannot tell. I mean, you look at the Phantom Menace and you look at that stuff out there and I look at the stuff from Star Wars. I'm like, man, those ships of the Phantom Menace should be wiping the floor. With those people, you know? <laughs> well, also, on top of what we've already said, I know they did it in Aliens, Colonial Marines, and it's a shame that game failed so badly. But a very real issue could be once you take off and nuke the site from orbit, and you have all the radioactive fallout. What if the aliens adapted to that? Oh, yeah. And what if they? What if that became a part of their evolutionary cycle? Because you did destroy the planet, you destroyed the colony or a part of the colony, but maybe not the derelict ship. Yeah, so that means there's, there's still things. Right. That means there's still things going on there. So see, that's a whole nother. That's another tome. That's another encyclopedia worth of books about what happened on LV four two six when Ripley left. It could be, and I'm going to end on this because this is a whole other pod. It could be a setup like unto Wrath of Khan. Yeah. What would happen if by some miracle 
there are survivors on LV-426 and they make it back to Earth or they make it back to the company or they make it back to whatever's left. And they start telling them about everything that happened since you abandoned us, like Khan felt like Kirk abandoned him. Do you see how that's a whole, that's a whole thing right there? See, uh, mm -mm. anyway, we're going to call it here because we could go another hour because when we get to brainstorming on things we wish we could have seen, it just makes what we did see all the more head scratching. Even when we deep dive into the larger themes and what could have happened, it's like, it's like there's so much untapped potential that's actually still there for alien stories. But perhaps, and I've said it before, perhaps movies are not the best medium. Perhaps if we looked at other platforms, they, those would be better places to tell these kinds of stories that we're dreaming up. And because uh, they can come out faster and they'd be cheaper to produce. And, you know, so all kinds of business things there. But anyway, I want to thank my co-host for an incredible pod. I knew this was going to be good because, as always, we're in. <clears throat> we can all rightfully defend our positions well. And we all write at the same time. That's why I love it. <laughs> so, we want to thank you guys for checking us out. Don't forget to check out the other pods uh, and video offerings on United Capes Podcast Network and Comic Crusaders. That's all us. Want to yep. thank David Nemesis Howard. Oh, this was great. I love this pod. And uh, yeah, if you haven't seen this movie, it's worth checking out because it's beautiful and there's some interesting stuff. Just don't think of it as an alien movie. Put that out of your head and, <laughs> and you'll be able to watch it. So want to uh, say thank you to Steve Shadewing Sellers. Yeah, um, this particular movie is one of those that I find fascinating uh, for all that I pick it apart. And there is plenty more stuff that, you know, you can pick apart as far as what doesn't work and how it doesn't fit. But it, but that's part of the fun, I think, with this movie. It's like it, it's I have to respect a movie that is really ambitious and tries to be something even when it completely fails. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're going to fail, fail big. This movie failed big. If you're going to fail, fail big. And thanks to Jeff, Dr. Fate Bracey. Yeah, I got to agree with Steve there. Uh, it, it's it's like uh, it's like with a prequel uh, trilogy for Star Wars. I didn't initially appreciate as much as I did upon subsequent viewings because I later on did appreciate the fact that Lucas was trying to do something different. He was trying to give us something new uh, within the context of the universe that he created. I, like I said, I have the Laud uh, Ridley Scott for trying to do the same thing. And unlike AVP2, which is a guilty pleasure of mine, this is not a guilty pleasure. Uh, this is a pleasure. It's just a flawed pleasure because I do find so many elements of it fascinating. I just wish they could have been properly gelled together. Well, I <laughs> didn't get any pleasure, but that's another conversation. So thanks again. <laughs> And we'll see you next time. We're going to uh, talk about next time. We're going to talk about uh, Alien Covenant, which is a whole nother bag of beans. Oh, and uh, it's kind of the book into everything that we started here. Every idea that was raised here is paid off one way or the other. The other. Covenant. And awesome. that's, what, that's what we're going to talk about next week. And that's going to be another doozy because, uh, but you'll see when you get there. So thanks for checking us out. And we'll see you next time on the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers.